Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. And today I am bringing you a guest interview episode. So for today's guest interview, I have Dr. Nick Norwitz coming on the show. For those of you who tuned in to a previous episode that I did around this concept of lean mass hyper responders, you'll know Nick from that one. Nick and Dave Feldman joined me for that episode, but I've been wanting to have Nick come on the show for a while now just to talk to him about just some of the stuff that he's learned around low carb ketogenic diets, the way he's personally programmed his, and just some other interesting stuff. Nick, uh, got his PhD in uh, ketogenics and uh, biodegenerative uh, diseases from Oxford and is currently at Harvard now. So he is uh, a bright guy who is really interested in low carb ketogenic diets for some personal reasons originally. And we talk a bit about that as well as his kind of Mediterranean spin on a low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. And one thing I always find really interesting is when someone puts like a new or different spin on a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet, because, you know, these type of uh, nutritional protocols sometimes I think get looked at through a pretty narrow lens as to how you can or should do them. And, you know, the more I look at it and the more I understand the options available and the different foods that you can actually get your hands on, I find there's a lot of different ways to actually program these types sorts of diets. And Nick kind of introduced a little bit of a different way to do it. Uh, so we talk a bit about that, uh, as well as just like the idea of health and nutrition, like programming advocacy, what like we would like to see with dietary guidelines, whether there should even be any dietary guidelines, the education behind nutrition, all sorts of different stuff. This was a pretty long discussion. I think we went for a little over two hours. So, uh, Hopefully you will enjoy my discussion with, with Nick and learn a little bit more about him. Uh, you can find Nick uh, on Twitter. Mostly if you're looking to interact with him, his Twitter handle is at Nick Norowitz and those things and any links that I, that I mentioned, we talked about here will also be able to be found in, in the show notes of this episode. So, all right, before we get started, just a couple quick announcements. If you want to support the show, you can do that by liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening device or YouTube. I've got video version up on YouTube and the audio on all podcast platforms. Also unique to YouTube is mini clips. So what I've been doing more consistently lately is breaking all the episodes down into kind of bite-sized chunks where I focus on like a specific topic or question that got asked. So if you're kind of curious about some of the things about a podcast, but not necessarily willing to pull the trigger on the full thing yet, the YouTube mini clips are a good spot to kind of check out some of the stuff that's going on in each episode that, that I put up there. Uh, also, if you want to support monetarily and access early audio releases of the show, as well as ad-free versions of the show, you can support through the show's Patreon page. Uh, details for that can be found on the show landing page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. Also at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO, you can contribute monetarily with a one-time donation that avoids all third-party platforms, just quick, easy click of the button. So head over there if that's something you're interested in. Uh, also, another way to help support HPO is through the show sponsors. So for today's episode, the show sponsors are uh, my friends at Bioptimizers. They have a product called Biome Breakthrough, and it is designed to support your gut health. 
Sometimes it is difficult to get in all the good foods that help support gut health. So this is where Biome Breakthrough can shine. Biome Breakthrough contains powerful probiotics and prebiotics, as well as one-of-a-kind ingredient called IGY Max. IGY Max is a patented egg-based protein that enhances gut health, can reverse damage caused by antibiotics, and even help support the immune system. Taking Biome Breakthrough first thing in the morning on an empty stomach mixed in eight ounces of water can help lessen gut problems. As always with our friends at Bioptimizers and their product Biome Breakthrough, they are risk-free with their impressive 365-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. So you can try it out risk-free. If interested, head over to biomebreakthrough.com forward slash human. That lets them know that you came through here. And if you decide to get something, human10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, will get you 10% off your next order. That's biomebreakthrough.com forward slash HPO and promo code human10. You can also see all the HPO podcast sponsors links and discounts by visiting the show sponsor page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also supporting this episode are my friends at Optimal Carnivore. Organ meats are some of the most nutrient dense foods on the planet. Despite their benefits, sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet. Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same compounds as bone broth. Their products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code HUMANSAVE10, that's HUMANSAVE10, for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors, links, discounts can be found by visiting the show sponsor page at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, folks. Um, just one more thing before we get going here. If you are interested to in kind of jumping in on some of the thoughts and ideas that I have over the course of the weeks and months that I'm out training for races, uh, doing races, recording podcasts and coaching people, reading and listening to podcasts and things like that, you can sign up for my newsletter. My newsletter can be found on my website at zachbitter.com forward slash newsletter uh, to subscribe to that. So if you're interested in some of those updates, head over there, sign up for that. Uh, other than that, I think we're ready to get to the show and welcome Dr. Nick Norwitz to the HBO podcast. Nick, thank you for taking some time out of your afternoon to, to come back on the show. Thank you so much, Zach. I'm really excited and uh, honored to, to be here chatting with you. Um, I know we had a lot of fun talking with Dave and if I must say, not only are you a super pleasant guy and I was just glad to be there, but I think me and Dave really want to study you at some point, given our interest <laughs> in, <laughs> I, I in still, athlete metabolism, you'd be an ideal subject. I still owe Dave, uh, some, uh, blood panels from post ultra marathon that I'm going to dig out as soon as we oh. get some of our stuff settled here in Austin. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd be happy to participate in anything. I don't, I I'm maybe a little different than you in that my blood panels have always typically other than post ultra marathon come back yeah. pretty 
in range with things like lipid profiles and stuff like that. So I haven't necessarily met the criteria for, for that particular cohort, but yeah, obviously, uh, there are people who do, and that's, that's kind of how you, we got to that previous episode on the lean mass hyperresponder stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe we can cycle back to that at some point. I'd be interested to ask you some details on your diet and, uh, have some ideas compared to some of Olux runners, um, and stuff, but, uh, yeah, we can table that, uh, if we have time, but anyway, thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you originally was, well, it was multi-part one is you follow a low carbohydrate diet and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it's more or less ketogenic strict versus mm -hmm. more or less like what I do, where I put myself in the low carb category. Some may argue with lifestyle. I'm in a ketogenic category, but uh, I'll let, let everyone debate that on their own. But for you, uh, you're into that side of things. It's part of your passion. It's part of your career trajectory, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm always really interested in just the different ways people formulate a low carb or ketogenic diet, because you know how it is on the internet and things like that. Everyone wants to yeah. simplify things down to, well, this is what someone on a low carb diet will experience. This is the negatives, the positives and everything in between when in reality, I like to look at low carb the same way someone would look at moderate carbohydrate just flipped on its head. So it's like, there's a lot of different ways you can fill in the gaps there with, um, with the types of foods you include in that. And I think that's part of, uh, of the issue of context that we often run into when discussing whether diets are healthy or not. And it also maybe highlights some things that I was unaware of too, because, uh, you, if I'm not mistaken, are a lean mass hyper responder. Mm -hmm. But uh, my my previous kind of thought about that was the lean mass hyper responders are going to be low carbers who tend to be a little more heavy on saturated fats versus uh, low carbers who are skewing more towards mono and polyunsaturated fats. And you, though, I think you kind of follow a little more of like a Mediterranean low carb or ketogenic diet, if I'm not mistaken. I do my saturated fat for the most part, and it varies because I tend to experiment my diet, but runs below 20% of my fat intake as low as 14%, which is very low, which means 86% of my fat intake at points in time, um, is unsaturated fat. And I'm still a lean mass hyper responder. Um, we can get into that. It might not be typical, but, um, yeah, I mean, I just want to preface the discussion we have about, about diet by just saying. You know, I'm definitely a one, a, not a one size fits all kind of guy. I don't believe that chronic ketosis is for everyone, or maybe even it's ideal for anyone, but you got to kind of tailor it to the individual. And for me, it's actually therapeutic. So the story of how I got to where I am now, and I'm still tweaking is, is a long one, but it has included a road through plant-based vegetarian, Mediterranean, FODMAP, like everything you can imagine, carnivore too. I do like to experiment and uh, I just find it fascinating how um, so many different people, patients, persons I see around me, like really do demonstrate um, incredible success with metabolic health on different dietary patterns. Although my particular interest is in, um, you know, ketogenics and everything related to that carbohydrate restriction, et cetera. So that's just what my background's in. Mm -hmm. So did you first dive into low carb ketogenic diet out of curiosity or was there something that tipped you off as to like, this is a direction that may be good. You mentioned therapeutic. So I'm guessing there was something that came up along the way that pointed you in that direction. Yeah. Um, 
if you don't mind me starting at the beginning, this is going to be kind of a longish story, but go for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we can start there. I, I, um, I was, you know, as a kid, a, um, really into nutrition and sports or more correctly sports and then fueling sports with nutrition. Um, I was going to say like you, I was a runner, but I don't think any, many people are a runner like you. I love to run. Let's say that. And I was pretty good. I mean, when I was like 15, 16, 17, when I was 17, I was running sub three marathons. Like I was a pretty decent athlete for a kid and really had no health problems um, to speak of. Barely a stuffy nose here and there. And my mentality around nutrition was what most people's are, um, is, you know, healthy, you know, healthy plate, food pyramid, that kind of thing. And so I ate probably what would be considered, um, along with the standard American guidelines and, um, did pretty well, at least athletically. And everything was seemed to be trucking along until I started to develop weird conditions, um, various inflammatory conditions, things with my skin, things with my knee. The most surprising was I developed uh, idiopathic osteoporosis uh, as a, a young kid, which was, um, which was very bizarre. I mean, it was like I was 18 years old and I was getting stress fractures all over. Um, uh, I, there was a point in time where I could run like, you know, a 3000 mile year. And then I got to the point in time where I could, I couldn't run a couple miles about fracturing a bone. Um, it was so weird. In fact, that it took me years to even get a bone density scan to diagnose the problem because nobody thought I possibly could have low bone density. It's a young, healthy male, normal BMI, um, you know, normal testosterone, normal thyroid, everything was pretty, uh, normal. But when I got the scan, um, my, my score showed that I actually had fully blown osteoporosis. My bones were that of like a 70 year old woman and it had developed over a couple of years, presumably, um, which was very odd. And, um, that at that point seemed like the end of my running career. Um, so I was 18 at that point or actually 20 at the point of diagnosis. So that was kind of like strike one for me. It was a weird, let's say zebra, zebra diagnosis, um, a term used for like just oddities. And so I kind of went along with it, accepted it. Um, several years later, I developed a different metabolic condition, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, specifically ulcerative colitis. Um, that was at the end of college. I did my undergrad at Dartmouth. And as I was um, finishing up there, I started to get terrible, terrible gut pains, um, after, you know, eating anything. And it was weird for me because I had never even had a single food aversion in the past, let alone food restrictions. Um, and now it was to the point where like, you know, eating was painful all the time. It made me, uh, you know, uh, agoraphobic, not want to go out. It was just kind of tough. Uh, and it escalated. So, uh, post-grad, I went to, to Oxford to do my PhD and it really hit a climax there where the flares got so severe that I was kind of in and out boomeranging out of the hospital, trying to do my studies, but really just not there mentally, physically. At that point I deteriorated physically to, you know, um, the point where like two years earlier, I was running marathons happily every Sunday kind of deal. And, um, and then I could barely roll over in bed. Walking to the lab, honestly, was an effort for me. Um, and at a low point, I ended up in a, a palliative care ward uh, at a hospital in, um, in England, the John Radcliffe, uh, for several days. And that was kind of like the straw that broke the camel's back, the, the awakening for me. And I became very desperate to start experimenting with things on my own. I had tried a lot of medications at that point 
and honestly hadn't made a lot of progress, especially with the colitis. Um, so it was really out of desperation that I turned to nutrition and just started throwing things against the wall, trying every sort of diet you can imagine. I listed them, some of them before. Um, but one of the last diets I tried probably the 12th or 13th was a ketogenic diet. And, um, as soon as I tried a ketogenic diet and went into a state of ketosis, um, a lot of my inflammatory symptoms went away. Um, not to get too graphic here, but ulcerative colitis is typified by bloody diarrhea that just vanished. My inflammatory markers and my stool dropped. I had more energy than I had had in a long time and I just felt fantastic. So, um, that kind of piqued my interest, um, and, and turned my, my academic mind towards that. And I started getting involved in the community and to my surprise, um, and I say this all the time, basically every podcast that I'm on, I, I talk about myself. I say this, that the most remarkable thing about my story is that it's not at all unique. While my conditions might've been a little bit strange, I observed now this motif around me where patients struggle with a chronic metabolic condition. It can be inflammatory bowel disease. It can be obesity, type two diabetes, it can be mental health issues. Um, and they just don't feel like they're getting to where they could uh, with standard treatment. And so they just start experimenting with things, not out of expectation, but out of just hope, hope that something could be better. And then they try a um, lifestyle based approach. I often, you know, seems to be carbohydrate restriction or ketogenic diets, although I probably have some degree of confirmation bias and their life utterly turns around. They achieve a quality of life that they never thought they could have again. Um, and so that was kind of my story that I went from a place where I didn't know if I'd be able to finish my, my degree. I didn't know, um, if I'd <laughs> live past 30, it felt like that at the time. You should have seen the scare my mom got out of having me in a palliative care ward. I feel worse for her than I do for myself. Um, but, you know, getting to a point where I felt amazing again, and I, you know, I have a future, I can finish my studies, I'm excited, I feel healthy, I'm getting my athleticism back, and I'm going to go to medical school, and the future just opened up. And, um, and, and given my history and what I was seeing, in terms of the benefits other people were, were experiencing, I thought, you know, this will be an amazing place to make a career, this is where somewhere I could have impact. And so um, now my, my, my personal and academic interest is in, um, you know, learning about metabolic health, lifestyle medicine, and, um, you know, applying it at every level you can, uh, including, you know, education of the lay public education of my peers and professors, um, just learning about it myself, writing research papers, developing as a clinician so that I can practice this form of medicine, uh, changing policy. I'm really, you know, at that stage of my career where I'm still exploring the possibilities, but it's overwhelmingly exciting to, to be entering this space and to be able to have conversations with interesting people like you, um, and just gain, gain insight into all the benefits, um, that this could bring to medicine, because I think no matter what our individual particular perspectives are on how the medical system needs to change, we all agree that it's not well equipped to handle the epidemic of uh, metabolic diseases that we are facing. So it's a little bit of my backstory. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's really interesting to me to look at kind of the whys as to people heading into like a lower carbohydrate approach. And it, I mean, it runs the spectrum. You'll have folks like myself or a fellow ultra runner, Jeff Browning, who mm -hmm. more or less did it for 
you know, to stay in the sport, so to speak, as a yeah. way to kind of fix some issues. Jeff, Jeff, a little more so like therapeutic, I would say. I, I mean, he had like a bad case of candida that he cleared up with a ketogenic diet and I guess has kept at bay since then. For myself, it was more like I think I was probably living a relatively unsustainable life training for ultra marathons with the current with what I was eating uh, at the time. And a lot of those symptoms seemed to go away when I switched to a lower carbohydrate diet. But that wasn't like a need based thing. I could have also stopped running and perhaps fixed some of the issues I was having. But for for someone like myself, you know, that wasn't really an option I was looking looking into exploring. Yeah. So, you know, I had really quick kind of immediate results with it where I, you know, we've had people on this podcast in the past who have like, you know, stories like yours, where it's like, they finally got around to like their 12th or 13th diet that finally clicked. And that I think is kind of hard for some folks to understand who have uh, just navigated nutrition pretty seamlessly throughout their life. And it was more about like following whatever recommendations were out there. And as long as you follow them, you were more or less doing okay, or at least good enough where you didn't really notice anything big enough to, to want to, you know, go a different route. Uh, but then there's people like yourself who, you know, life is difficult, not just training for races and things like that. And there's just a little bit of a different motivation, I think, to get, get, get a little more curious at that sort of stuff when, when you have a situation like yours. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I don't know. I, I'm just trying to reflect on, on what was going through my mind at the time in terms of experimentation and in terms of the thing you said about some people just navigate nutrition very seamlessly. Actually, if you see me pausing right now, kind of caught me off guard because that has not been my experience. Like, who navigates this space seamlessly? It's so confusing and polarized. Like at this time, you know, I had a degree in biochem and cell biology and was doing a PhD in human metabolism. And I still found it profoundly confusing. I didn't know who to listen to about what. And it came down to just finding what worked for me. I, I guess I, I, I want to just return to that thing you said about some people navigating it seamlessly. Um, cause I'm interested. That's not actually a perspective. I, I think I've heard before. Yeah. And maybe it was a little bit of, uh, a, a little more, a little more, uh, directed than it needed to be. But I, you know, it's just, I find that a lot of times and possibly it's just the group of individuals that I'm engaging with on a mm -hmm. fairly frequent basis where it's like, they've gotten to a point where they've trained themselves to be able to run a hundred mile race. It's yeah, like, you kind of have to have a lot of your physical nutritional things, at least semi squared away to be able to continually do that type of stuff. So, uh, some folks, I think, are just maybe they respond a little bit better to the standard recommendations dietarily. And mm. because of that, they just never really hit a hiccup like you did or like I did mm. or like some of these other folks did. So they just haven't had a big enough. I guess maybe what I'm looking for there is people haven't experienced enough negatives with the standard recommendations to really drive uh, a desire to make a change. So whether or not they're actually thriving on it, I guess, mm. would be the next question. For sure. For sure. I think that you, you kind of need the motivation to try to change. I mean, it, it, it whenever I'm talking to someone who's um, kind of naive to this area of research um, and is otherwise healthy, which includes a lot of my peers, I try to put myself in their, their shoes. And I think to myself, I'm going to say some controversial things. I might cite some papers that, you know, they're not going to know. And from their perspective, it's okay. You know, someone who is not 
uh, accredited medical person telling me something versus, you know, the USDA telling me something, a board that's backed by presumably like, you know, a world or, or national experts. So it becomes a he said, she said, if two people are telling you things and you don't know the space, why would anybody listen to me? Like, you know, versus just what the guidelines are. We assume the guidelines will be correct. So that's what my mentality was um, prior to, again, getting desperate and just trying to experiment and then finding something that works. So I do think you need that, that driver. And uh, for a carbohydrate restriction in particular, I think there's a huge social obstacle to giving it a genuine try. And so if you don't have a health issue that's motivating you, or you aren't a, you know, highly disciplined athlete where it's like, you know, the really focused on your performance, it's, it's a hard thing to, to really give a genuine try and see how it makes you feel. And then unfortunately what that means is, um, people might have, you know, subclinical pathology that kind of progresses to the point where they break, um, and things start to spiral up to spiral out of control. I mean, that's presumably what happened with me. It's not like everything, you know, happens at one point, the pathology develops over time. Um, but you don't know what's going on. You never think, oh, this is going to happen to me, like any condition, like cancer, like, oh, you know, it's not going to happen to me until it does. And then you have to deal with it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm always struck by the people who are able to, to really delve into nutrition, metabolic health, carbohydrate restriction, who, you know, just out of pure interest, there are those people. And I find them just remarkable. And I have a lot of respect also for the people who are open-minded enough to really listen to, to, to patients and people in this field and hear their perspectives and their journeys, um, without having their own kind of metabolic crisis, so to speak, because reflecting on my own history, I, I, I don't think, you know, an 18 year old me would have listened to a mid 20 year old, something talk about low carbohydrate diets. I would be like, no, what are you talking about? Carbohydrates are part of a healthy eating plan. You can't get rid of your carbs or your main fuel. You need fiber, all that. So, um, yeah, no, there's a cultural mentality around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you there. I think I definitely see a fair share of folks that will come probably to me more specifically because they realize that I coach endurance athletes and follow a low carbohydrate diet and they came across it and are interested enough to try it without like a super compelling reason. They're not necessarily like out there suffering, following whatever, kind of standard American diet they had previously, whether it be quote unquote clean or unclean, mm -hmm. but, uh, they get it from some of the, the literature around ultra marathon running and just how like the sport itself is so low intensity relative to it's like Olympic distance counterparts that it kind of opens the door for some of these yeah. like slower, uh, fuel sources or more reliable, but slower fuel sources like fat. And they just look at it and like, it makes sense in their mind. They're like, I'm running a race that I'm going to be around probably 60, 70% of my VO two max. I can get away with fueling minimally for something like that, uh, from a glycogen defense standpoint of assuming they do the right things in their normal diet and training and things like that in order to promote higher fat oxidation rates. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it is interesting to see that group come through and just be, get, get curious about things where, where I, I, I don't know that I would have ever done it purely out of just like, oh, this is going to be a superior approach to what I'm trying to do, even though I am targeting hundred mile races. Maybe I would have, when I switched over, I hadn't run a hundred mile race yet. So I'd done 50 milers as the furthest I had gone. And, uh, so that is an interesting, interesting point for myself, for myself as well. But one thing I, 
wanted to ask you about that kind of stuff is just recommendations in general, because it seems like we kind of go down a path of there has to be a recommendation or there needs to be this like kind of overreaching standard that people at least start out at. And granted, there can be quite a bit of flexibility within it. But the more I think about nutrition, the more I ultimately think like any one size fits all type of recommendation. I almost just wish that they would stay away from that and rather go about recommending like some options for people and exploring a little bit deeper as to like, well, what have you actually tried versus not tried and what kind of things are bothering you or working well for you. And let's try to pinpoint a nutritional approach that will best serve you at the individual level versus trying to make these wide sweeping, like population recommendations. And I know part of that maybe be my background in teaching where, you know, I'd have students who thrived under the standard curriculum. And then I have students who just tanked under the standard curriculum. But if I was able to change the way that we put the education in front of them, they would thrive. So I kind of look at it the same way with nutrition. It's like someone comes to me with an issue from a training standpoint, racing standpoint from a that that's tied to nutrition. Well, let's try a different route with that individual. They've already kind of stress tested the recommendation, so to speak. So we can assume that that didn't go well with them, or at least in the way they did it. And if they're open to it, then I think there's other options out there and they're worth exploring as people like yourself have found out. Yeah. I definitely think there's a danger to providing a hard and fast prescription and setting the expectation that you should have success because the inevitable result of that is there's two possibilities. One is uh, the person successful, in which case, great. You hit the jackpot there. The other possibility is that they fail, uh, in which case they lose confidence in you as a coach or a health expert. Um, and, um, yeah, you, 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 aren't going to be successful with them in terms of like, you know, then trying the next approach. I think it makes a lot more sense to focus on the empiric process saying, here's how we're going to go about doing it together as a coach, um, trainee, patient, physician pair. Here's the system. And we're going to continue to iterate until we find something that works with you. I think setting the expectations appropriately is important and then making it a, a collaboration and, um, person, patient, trainee-centered uh, program. I'm quite interested now just thinking about some of the clinical trainings that we're doing and there's this concept called motivational interviewing. And it has to do with, you know, just behavior change. And, and the, the crux of it is that, like, if you want behavioral modification to stick at all, be that dietary modification or anything, the motivation needs to come from the person. So on that level too, like the prescriptions, the guidelines, they, they don't work so well because it's, it's effectively saying, do this. And then you should see results. Whereas you kind of probe with people, well, what are you interested in? And why does this make sense to you? What have you been reading? And then kind of try to steer them in the direction, given um, questions and, um, you know, thoughts about what they're ready for and what might actually work with them. What's plausible to implement. Um, and then I think, you know, just treating every single person as a guinea pig, um, because I think that's fun for the provider, uh, it teaches the provider and it's fun for the patient. It makes it a journey, which is what this needs to be. If you make it, you know, a process of ongoing N equals one experimentation for the person and make them flip their mindset to know this isn't a chore. This isn't a prescription I'm giving you 
that you need to do. This is an opportunity for you to experiment on yourself and do the coolest experiment of all, which is tweaking, say, what you put in your body um, and the way you live your life and to continually improve yourself as a person. It's the, um, you know, teach a man to fish rather than give a man a fish model. And I, I, don't, I don't know how you feel, but in, in the, 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 the little coaching I've done, a little clinical work I have, there have been those times when I see that light go on in a person's eye when they, they get it. They get that, I understand this empiric process. I understand how to tweak things systematically and be observant of what's going on in my body. And, and when that like, light goes on, I know they're going to be successful long-term. I know they're not going to you know, relapse because their mindset's completely changed. And they're always going to kind of be fiddling with things, maybe not in the most efficient manner, but over time, they're going to make steps forward um, and not backward. So um, yeah, I would agree on that. All that said, I still think there's room for metabolically informed and evidence-based starting points for various conditions. So for example, there might be other ways to reverse type two diabetes other than carbohydrate restriction. That said, understanding the pathology, uh, insulin resistance, obesity, et cetera, it kind of makes sense to start there, you know, as a starting point, as compared to a lot of other approaches, um, and then see if that works for someone. And if not, okay, you can iterate it, but you know, in the general population, this, this tends to work. So why isn't it working for you? And it might be that you're an outlier and it doesn't work for you and you need to try something else. But I think we can use the evidence base to establish starting points with the acknowledgement that in any study, even the best RCT, there's going to be error. There's going to be standard deviation. So it doesn't tell you about what the individual patients should do. And um, there's a distinction between population health and individual, you know, patient treatments. And we need to have a, a collaborative mindset, be that patient physician, be that coach trainee, be that, you know, person by themselves on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think you're right. I think like there, as we get more and more information on what would be considered like fringe dietary approaches, you know, you, you, we do end up finding, well, these do tend to be a little more impactful at, for certain things. And then, yeah, you have mm-hmm. some starting points that I think are maybe a little more clear than just here's the standard American diet, the recommendations and, uh, you know, s- start here versus let's explore your specific circumstance and then start with the recommendations of starting points and things like that. Uh, I, I quite like that approach. And, and then you add in all sorts of other things, like what you mentioned with, uh, like essentially coaching or some mentorship within it. Like I think like mm-hmm. Verda's done this quite well, where it's like, we're going to take a low carb approach with these folks, most specifically type two diabetics. And we're going to start with this, but we're going to help you. We're going to support you along the way so that we can make yeah. something that would maybe not be as conducive to stumbling upon with our food environment to something that is manageable for you to navigate from the early days versus, having too much trial and error occurring and mistakes being made and then uh, kind of the failure leading to giving up more or less. Yeah. You hit on two really important things there. I think one is um, has to do with support and the other with the confidence you have in the patient or person. So with respect to the support, I, I don't think that there's anything more important when somebody's starting a process like this, it's just about having someone who's a cheerleader there to support you through it. I mean, some people are disciplined enough to say, I'm just going to do this 
and I'm going to go, you know, cold turkey, cut out all sugar and processed foods. And despite the food environment, I'm going to succeed. That's a very small minority of people, um, especially when you live in a social environment, when you're constantly having food pushed at you. So maybe you're in an appointment with your doctor, or maybe you're in a clubhouse room and you make, you make a resolution to say, cut out sugar. But then day in and day out, when people are kind of like sending you the signal, oh, no, you're a party pooper for not doing this. Oh, you don't really need to do this. You're not getting the, the, the reinforcement that you even can do this, that this is sustainable. You're being told it's not. You're probably going to you know, give up, not because it's an unpleasant lifestyle, but just because of the messaging you're getting that gets internalized over the course of your days. Um, and kind of uh, an overlapping element there is is the confidence people have in themselves and the confidence physicians or coaches have in people. I often find that, at least what I'm seeing, like doctors don't give patients often enough credit for what they potentially could do. And everything needs to be reduced to realistic baby steps, as it's often put. I was literally reading um, an article on nutritional, nutritional counseling that we had to from med school. And I, I, I kid you not, this was an example in it. They were like, okay, you need to make small improvements that are realistic. They call them like SMART goals. I forget what the acronym stands for. You can look it up. Um, like specific, measurable, something, something, uh, time constrained, whatever. One of the examples was, okay, like switch potato chips for tortilla chips because tortilla chips are marginally small, like, like lower in trans fat. Like that was the level a baby step. Whereas, you know, there was another example where a patient said, I want to go cold turkey and cut out. I forget what it was. I think it was sugar. And the retort was, oh, that, you know, do you think that's realistic for you? Do you think you really could do it? Maybe we should start with something that we know you can achieve to kind of reinforce um, that you can do this and we'll kind of iterate. And I think that's just emblematic of the fact that, you know, it, you need to gauge where the person is and, and obviously do something realistic. But I find that people just in general are so strong when you have confidence in them and when they have that support that there are people that really can just say, no, I'm cutting out sugar. I'm never going to eat sugar again. Say look in my life and they don't. And you maximize the probability of, of, of not having that baby step, but having that leap. If you express confidence in the person and support them and our medical system isn't really built for that ongoing support. I think we need more like team centered medicine and, um, and health coaches, health, health cheerleaders integrated into the standard medical system in order to make that succeed. But I think that's the way we kind of need to go because, and this is kind of a controversial opinion, but I don't think the baby steps end up mattering or making that big an impact because even let's say you make that change temporarily, okay, I can swap potato chips for tortilla chips. You're not going to see a measurable change in health that's going to reinforce that behavior. You can do it arbitrarily and maybe you'll be comforted by the idea, but you're not going to see that like HbA1c drop from 10% to 5%, you know, that people literally are seeing with carbohydrate restriction. And I feel like those big leaps are what we need to, to push for and celebrate when people are ready to take them. And I think people more often than others realize can achieve that. We just need to believe in them, believe in each other and support each other. And I, 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 don't see that mentality around, um, around medicine. Fortunately, I actually do quite a bit and some of the social media, um, environments that are popping up, especially clubhouse. Um, so often when I'm working with someone, 
Um, or even if I'm just like, you know, talking to a patient after clinic, I'm like, look, if you want to try this, I, I genuinely believe you can do it. I think this can change your life. Just make sure to find a good support group, go to this, you know, say clubhouse and talk to these people. They might not provide the most reliable information. They might just be the lay public, but they're going to tell you, you can do this. And that's really going to make a difference in your journey because you can, you have the strength to do this and you just need to have that messaging so that you internalize that message rather than the message that, oh no, you can only take baby steps. You only have the ability to swap potato chips for tortilla chips and nothing else. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think uh, like one thing I do with, with my coaching clients when it comes to just staying motivated and staying on track is we, we pick their big goal up front. A lot of times, like what race do you want to prepare for? And that really motivates them. Just like, I think with a dietary intervention, if you say, well, we're going to make a dietary intervention in order for you to reach your goal of like weight loss, like help out with your type two diabetes, whatever their big end goal target is. And that a lot of times gets them excited enough to start it. But once you kind of get into the swing of things, unless you have kind of like mini goals built into that process where they can see some things happening and some improvements occurring, some wins along the way, that motivation oftentimes wanes. So, you know, you get two thirds of the way into the training program. If they're not set up to be able to see their wins in that first two thirds, they may be starting to lose that end motivation goal. If they don't have those built in, like I'm improving Mm -hmm. my short interval pace, I'm improving my long interval pace, I'm improving my long run pace, or I got further this week than I did last week. And they can see these rewards that are kind of built into the program, which kind of give them that more short term motivation that is also going to feed into their long term goal. And I think you're right, like, you know, with the potato chip or tortilla chip example, it's like, yeah, that's such a small thing uh, that they may not see the goal up front or Mm -hmm in practice. So it's like, they may need something like a little more immediate, like, well, let's remove the potato chips altogether and see like what kind of progress you make. And that might be something that is achievable, but also reflect a big enough like progress marker in a few weeks that it keeps them motivated to kind of keep making those steps towards their ultimate goal. Yeah, I agree. I, I I would kind of class it into the broader concept of uh, almost gamification Mm -hmm. of nutrition and health where like you need to like, you know, have some way you're, you're measuring your, your outcome. Now this can be PR and races. It can be like, you know, gains and lift, or it could even be something. And this is, I, I love continuous tracking. I think we're going to have, you know, more things like CGMs, continuous glucose monitors coming out. But I think those are such powerful tools, not just because they give diagnostic information to a clinician, but because it immerses the person in data that, you know, is really easy to digest and understand and markers that you can like track continuously and that you have, you know, um, accountability to yourself. And I, I, I just think that that's so powerful. Like, you know, when you have a patient with diabetes, just wear a continuous glucose monitor that alone, I think can motivate profound behavioral change. In fact, um, as an aside, I'll just share the fact that we in, um, uh, a bunch of uh, Harvard med students are going to do a study on ourselves with CGMs. We just got approval. We got an IRB exemption and the school approved us to get uh, like 10 to 12 Dexcoms that we're going to wear, you know, as a group for like eight weeks. And it'll be really interesting to see how, um, well, my peers, I've done this before myself, but like attitudes change towards metabolism and health when you're getting that persistent, you know, biofeedback and insight into yourself and are immersed in metabolic health education to some degree. I think it's such a cool, powerful tool that 
you know, you don't need to be a PhD scientist to kind of, to kind of play with. Uh, again, it doesn't need to be that. It can be whatever goal you want, but you need goals. You need a way to measure your progress. And when you have that, it can make even things that were previously painful be really, really pleasurable. Like, you know, maybe you hate leg day at the gym, but if your, you know, squat increases 20%, probably going to look forward to your next leg day a bit more because you know what you're doing has uh, a meaningful output. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the most fun reasons to take on something that you're either bad at or just unfamiliar with, because you're starting at such a low level, you see that progress a lot quicker. I think like, you know, at this point in my running career, like I'm looking for like very small improvements. So that can be harder to tease out. But if I go, like you said, into the weight room and start doing some strength work, a lot of times I can see some pretty big progress marks early on and kind of stay a little more motivated with it. So I think, you know, we need to lean into some of those, those protocols with nutrition, the way we do with other things. And we find ourselves in a little bit of a better position to help solve problems at the individual level, at least. And it, it kind of goes to the whole idea of just like what works on paper versus what works in practice. And one of the interesting things I often see is like, when you look at some of these dietary record, not recommendation, but dietary approaches, whether it be the standard practice or recommendations or a low carb or any of these other dietary trends is like the rate of success seems to be quite low with amongst all of them in terms of what we would like to see at a population level. But to me, what that says is, well, there is a small percentage of folks who seemingly are able to do this without a whole lot of guidance, because most people are going to take this stuff on, on their own or on something they heard or follow someone on the internet and say, okay, I'm going to try this out and see for myself and and likely make some mistakes along the way. But, you know, if, if the folks who are able to do it right, or it works well enough for that, say we get a five to 10% uh, population getting an improvement with X dietary pattern, why not roll out a whole bunch of options so people can find which one of those they fall into that small five to 10% of and lean into that a little bit more. Uh, and obviously you can make changes along the way if you need to, if things, things change, but I kind of quite like that idea of just like, we need to get away from what works on paper and lean more towards what works in the field and practice, uh, then add the coaching side of things to it, to improve it even more. And then maybe we see the success rates that you do at like Verda and things like that. Yeah. I think I'd add one more layer to it and, and question, why is there a difference between what's termed um, efficacy versus effectiveness. So efficacy is how well something would work in an ideal scenario. So say you're doing like a nutrition study. Oh, if you keep people in a metabolic ward and you control how much they, you know, eat and exercise, that would be an example of diet uh, efficacy. Whereas effectiveness is like, like you said, real world applications. And I guess the question for me is, is like you said, is uh, each person going to fit in the different, oh, that five to 10%. Um, you need to define the five to 10%, or is it more a matter of there is a discrepancy between the efficacy that, you know, what you would see in a metabolic war versus the real life because of some other gap, say like an information gap. So if I control someone's diet, you know, I, you know, or I'm following them continuously and kind of help design their diet plan to make them lose weight then okay, great. Um, and maybe, you know, they'll be effective. And then I let them off on their own and they gain the weight back. Is that because it's something that doesn't work for them or won't work for them? Or is it just because they don't have the tools to make it successful? Like they just might not know, you know, that there's sugar in this thing. 
And I, I see that all the time. Like, oh, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm cooking for someone and I make them a low, this happened. Someone who was an MD, PhD, pretty smart person. You think they'd be able to read a nutrition label, but like I make them a low carb halva. They're doing great. And then, you know, later on, they're like doing it on their own. They go buy halva at the store because they think it's low carb and it has like 50 grams of sugar per serving. It's just about, you know, um, I, I think the social environment, the informational environment makes it really difficult for people to succeed um, if they're not passionate about this kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I think one of the more glaring examples of this is if we just lean into the recommendations and look at like how successful they appear to be in the lab or on paper versus in practice. And I, I mean, you see this argument happen on social media every day, essentially of like, oh, I tried, you know, following, you know, the government recommendations and I failed. And then someone digs in and is like, oh, it turns out you weren't actually following them hit to a T you were, you, you may have been hitting the macronutrient ratios or something like that, but, uh, you weren't doing exactly what they said. And therefore, uh, the diet didn't fail you, you failed the diet, which I look at a little differently. I think it's like, did they, or are we in a food environment that makes it so unconducive to actually being able to follow a formula that is, uh, follow a formula like, or a recommend specific recommendation without some help navigating that food environment. And I guess my question is like, how big is the food environment in terms of that creating that gap between like the success stories we maybe see in the lab versus what we see in the field? Yeah. Well, the unfortunate thing with industry is the food environment's always changing. So, you know, we're at a place now where, and I think everybody knows this, like the food environment for the standard American diet or like that, the my plate kind of thing is built so that it makes it very difficult for the layperson to follow. So for example, you need to get this much whole grains per day. Okay. Well now like what is lucky, lucky charms has a certain amount of whole grains. So technically you can use that to fulfill your requirements. And that's where people tend to, to lean just because it's palatable, it's approved, it gets the seal and everything, and you can use it to check the boxes. Um, and so then you have these other diets crop up, um, including low carb diets. And one of the reasons I think that they're one of, I think that there are you know many reasons, and I would definitely advocate for the, the metabolic improvements, but one of the, one of the reasons that they're probably successful, and this is especially to carnivore diets, is because they eliminate that at the time that these were invented, there weren't, you know, the low carb breads, the quest bars, et cetera, industries that were kind of preying upon this, this new niche and culture. Um, and so your diet was implicitly clean, but now we see, and this is worries me a little bit is these things creeping into the food environment. That's like, Oh, you can have your keto, you know, ice cream and your keto bread. I can't tell you how many like, you know, keto, variations of baked goods I see on my like Twitter feed. And I just, you know, I, I, I worry about it because I have like a ketogenic diet that's built on quest bars is the same as a vegan diet built on Oreos. It's like, <laughs> it's just, it's not going to be ideal. It doesn't mean you can't include these things in your diet, but the food environment will always shift to try to try to provide like hyper palatable, like cheat foods, just because that's in industry interest. And it's up to the individual to kind of and it shouldn't be, but be aware of that and, and, and be aware of falling prey to that. Fortunately, I do feel like we're seeing, um, a trend towards people just like 
moving away from uh, industrially processed foods and trying to eat whole foods, whether it's carnivore and people are just eating grass-fed ribeye or it's uh, whole food plant-based, I do feel like that there's, that there's a trend away from processed foods, um, which in and of itself is a big winner. If I were talking to like somebody in a clinic and I could only get one message across to them, I'd be like, eat foods with one ingredient as a start. I mean, in, in that you'll be successful to some extent, and then you can kind of iterate from there. Um, but yeah, the, the food environment, it's pretty toxic. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are Bioptimizer's Biome Breakthrough, which is their gut health product, and Optimal Carnivore with their organ complex products. You can head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for links, details, and descriptions, as well as discounts that they offer, or head to the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, you know, we're seeing this uh, with the ketogenic low carbohydrate diet, like you mentioned, it's like you could do a ketogenic diet and have an actual slice of real bread included in it. That may be the only amount of carbohydrate you have during the day, but you mm -hmm. could include it. So then you get like these like keto breads, which essentially are just relatively lower carb than the other option. But then you have the scenario, sort of like what you said before, where people are just kind of unaware of what the home-baked version versus the store-bought version actually has to offer. So you make someone like a low-carb bread or something like that at home that actually is low-carb versus what they may buy at the store. And then they end up actually with a couple hundred grams of carbohydrate over the course of the day because they're just eating a lot of those kind of processed low-carb options that may just barely clear the bar of uh, qualifying similar to uh, the Lucky Charms do for like a whole grain quota. Yeah. I think everybody needs to find what's sustainable for them. So I don't want to like bash any of these, um, options because you just kind of need to find, you know, what is sustainable for you? I think a good example for like is diet soda. I never recommend diet soda. I'm pretty against artificial sweeteners in general. That said, if having a diet Coke is going to make or break your low carb diet, I certainly don't think a diet Coke is as bad as a regular Coke and then go for it. Like, do what you need to do. And I think that's part of the art of nutrition and medicine for that matter is figuring out where to draw that line, where to push someone to the point where like, you know, they can be as optimal as possible without being obsessive to it, to the point that it's harming their quality of life. Um, and that's a, a totally an individual thing. Um, I don't think there's any particular prescription for it. I'd also say that like for these substitutes, like they have the protein, high protein breads that you bake at home. I celebrate people doing them as like activities. I feel like some people really get into the nutrition and, and, and making these substitutes becomes just a source of pleasure and an activity. I'm kind of actually one of those people like, well, I don't per se myself actually have any taste for sweet. I love making like keto ice cream. I just like the process. It's enjoyable for me. It's something that's like, you know, a relaxing and a pastime. And I feel like a lot of people um, get so into this. They find so much success that they then find pleasure in being creative with their nutrition. And that's something to definitely celebrate. I think that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you open the door to teaching someone how to actually prepare food, which I think is something that we should do more of at like the, mm. even the elementary middle school level. Of oh, hundred percent mm -hmm. a controversial opinion. I think we should replace the foreign language requirement with just like cooking mm -hmm. classes or something like that. There's so many classes that you have to take. 
in elementary school and high school that aren't as functional as like, let's teach you how to use a washing machine, you know, and a dishwasher and to cook and to shop and to read a nutrition label. Those fundamental mm-hmm. things that it's, it's surprising the degree to which even fully grown adults, even doctors, like don't know really how to digest that kind of information or the tricks that, you know, industry uses to slip in different forms of sugar, or, you know, break down a nutrition label. And it varies the laws state to state, the country to country. Um, and some of the labels are just so confusing, like all the different forms of like, this is natural. This is grass fed. This is a hundred percent grass fed. This is organic. This is free. What does all that mean? Like you really, I think at every market that just should be like a glossary. You can go look these things up, but I don't think of, yeah, it's a lot of, it's not really regulated to know what a term is. That's meaningful is, is quite difficult. So people just get confused, give up and then buy the thing that is best advertised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's a. It's an interesting topic, especially when you get into the education process, because I think like you're you're right. We need to be teaching people more practical skills. I don't know that it necessarily has to come at the expense of what we're currently doing. I just think we do a poor job of implementing it. And it's like rather than taking an approach where here's the math skills you need to have and the standards that you're going to hit throughout the course of your education process. So we're going to give it to you directly. I don't think that should be the starting point. I think that should be the outcome where we should look at it like well, we're going to cook this meal today and the teacher's responsibility isn't to be smarter than a student. It's to be able to take that activity and pull where is the math, where is the reading comprehension, where is the research component, where is the, you know, the science in here, the chemistry in here and start weaving those, those, uh, those standards into an activity that the person will actually use, even if they at some point in their life no longer actually require that actual like standard of math that we were trying to teach within it. And I think when we start steering things that way, you just end up getting more positivity along for the ride with it. So that, that is probably a big block or a big uh, hurdle to get over from just a, you know, an onboarding standpoint, because it's like, we've got so much history in the way we educate and the teachers are trained to do it that way. So it's like, how do you kind of start that process? You almost need to start like educating the future teachers at an early level. So they come in with that route and then have school districts that actually give them the freedom to explore it and eventually just kind of work it into the system versus maybe a complete overhaul and, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater perhaps. Yeah, I agree. I think you're right also about um, like how to start the process. You could say the same about medical education. Should doctors learn about medical education? I mean, uh, nutrition, a hundred percent. Is nutrition taught in medical schools? Well, not that much. So let's just start teaching nutrition in medical schools. Okay, but who's going to teach it? <laughs> Current clinicians? Well, who's going to teach them? Yeah. The guidelines? Do we want that to be the standard that we're teaching the next generation? So like, you know, where do we start with this kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're moving in the right direction. I'm generally optimistic. Um, I've become more optimistic, to be honest, in the past year um, because I, you know, I was, I was a little bit worried, um, going from the, the point I was at, you know, being, uh, an academician and focusing just on the research, the science and someone who on the population level probably has extreme viewpoints about nutrition. Um, I certainly don't endorse the gu- dietary guidelines. So going to, you know, medical school, I was a little bit worried about being a pariah. Um, and having trouble biting my tongue and just kind of, you know, getting through so I could be at a place of influence where I can make change. Um, I did find that I have a hard time biting my tongue and that I, I, uh, spread the research message 
that I think is appropriate. But what I found is that people, um, not just my peers, but my professors are actually really, really receptive that, um, among the, the, the physicians I, I work around and the next generation of physicians, there is definitely a hundred percent, um, an acknowledgement that what we're doing isn't working, that we need to be focusing on metabolic health and a, just an interest and in learning about this area. So I, I, I do think this is going to shift over the next five, 10, 15 years. Um, and so I'm excited just because like, that's all you need. That's all you need is the interest at the patient level, at the physician level. Um, and, I, and I now kind of observe that all around me. So it's inspired with me, you know, a degree of optimism, even if Twitter gets hairy sometimes. Yeah. I mean, Twitter is perhaps the ugly side of, uh, the, the tools we have available to us today yeah. in a lot of cases, but I think those tools are also, they have a positive side to them. Mm-hmm. Not, not necessarily Twitter specifically, although you could definitely make that argument with Twitter specifically, but the way I think about it is just with our remote access and some of the wearables and the feedbacks that feedback, like with the CGMs that we can get now. And now like I'm seeing like devices that you can actually test like your, your blood cholesterol levels and things like that at home. So you can be monitoring these things at a more regular basis. Like the, sometimes I wonder if like, if the person who's guiding you had better access to individual information about you, instead of just like one or two blood panels every year, maybe they have the information to feel empowered to actually steer you in a direction that's going to work for you versus being in a position where like they have really no choice, but to throw the recommendations at you because they don't have enough information to do anything otherwise. And they're probably kind of like you entering school where it's like, do I really want to open my mouth here? Or should I just like say what I'm supposed to say and, you know, let the person figure it out on their own. Exactly. I, I think that in 10 years, 15 years, we're going to look back at the tools we're using now in terms of metabolics and just think, Oh my God, we were in the like dark ages, medieval times. It's so crude. When you think about that, Oh, I'm going to get a fasting lipid panel at some period fasting, probably between eight and 16 hours, a couple of times a year. And I'm going to use that as the basis for my clinical decision-making rather than you know, uh, at least in research, the kind of tools we have now with longitudinal multiomics. And what I mean by that is many different time points, sometimes continuous multiomics. So like genomics, metabolomics, microbiome, um, transcriptome, proteome. And when you take all of that and integrate it, which I think in time we're going to be able to do, you get so much information, certainly more than an individual can process. But when you combine that with artificial intelligence and the way that's ramping up, we're going to see, you know, personalized medicine absolutely explode. And that's super exciting. I mean, we're already seeing a little bit of research in that. Um, even as early back as like 2015, they were doing studies where they took, um, you know, microbiome samples from people and put continuous glucose monitors on them and then used AI to predict based on your microbiome sample you know, how you'd respond to different foods. So, you know, you're going to track the foods you eat, you're going to have test meals and we know what your microbiome sample is. So if we take this pool of data from all these different people, we can kind of guess in a validation cohort and a new set of people given a sample, how you'd respond to these different foods and then make a prescription nutrition meal plan. This was actually done by the Seagal group out of Israel with a reasonable degree of success. And that was back in 2015. You can only imagine as you start to integrate you know, other monitoring techniques beyond just the microbiome, again, transcriptome, proteome, genetics, you take all that information, you bring it together, 
and you implement AI, like the, the kind of tools we can have, the apps we could have on our cell phones and in the clinic. Um, it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think like the inputs that we're going to start seeing appear in some of the stuff that's the framework is already sort of there for, I think will be really interesting. I think like the kind of the starting point that I was aware was like avatar nutrition or like a company like that, who they take something that used to be like essentially like a chronometer or my fitness pal, where you put in the stuff and then you get a result and that kind of guides you to a degree. Let's take another step and say, this is what I want to do and have it actually make recommendations to you along the way as things change. So far, they're relatively primitive, in my opinion, in terms of like what you can input there, because a lot of it ends up just being like weight loss or weight gain or lean, lean composition and things like that, where I think like once we get better inputs of like you know, CGM monitors, uh, cholesterol monitors, all these other things that can just put way more data in there, they can steer you in even more specific direction than what they already are doing. And at that point, it's like, yeah, that's that's the level of AI that I think is, is going to be the positive side of it, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, I'm just, I'm contrasting that to, um, you know, that image in, I've seen Wally one time, but you know what I'm talking about? Like that yeah. movie in, in nutrition. Yeah. It's just known for that image of the future human being in this chair, completely inert, overweight, and just like rendered motionless. And while, I, you know, one could definitely see that as a future possibility, I could also see a future in which we're the complete opposite, where we're all humans like, you know, you, just because we're given the information and that's where people will naturally trend. If we have more specific recommendations and you get this biofeedback um, and also you change the culture around nutrition and fitness and health uh, to enable people to reach the, their best selves. And that when we decide this is a worthwhile goal for our society to pursue, we can achieve it. It just, there's so many obstacles right now. Um, I'm just like re reflecting um, pessimistically on, you know, my next several years, for example, of training, I, I value health, I value sleep, I value exercise and like how difficult it's gonna actually be to say prioritize my health as a medical trainee, which is ironic. I don't bring this up as a woe is me, but it's ironic because shouldn't medical professionals be the standards and lead by example. And it's like, okay, we're supposed to take care of ourselves, but you're going to work more than 24 hour shifts. You're going to be stressed out. Um, and it's not just medicine. That's like that. I mean, a lot of jobs are like that. The expectation is that you kind of put health second, that you're sitting in a chair, that it's inappropriate to be on a zoom call while you're also say doing exercise, you're going on a walk. Like, why can't we do things virtually while you're like, you know, on a walking treadmill or can't we normalize that? Let's not have you know, meetings in boardrooms, let's just go on a walk together. Let's make more green space. Let's put gyms in hospitals. Like how often do you see a Dunkin' Donuts in the hospital? Pretty often. How often do you see a gym in the hospital? Like shouldn't all gyms have hospital? Uh, hospitals have gyms? It would just make sense to me. And they, they don't. And what does that say about society and our norms? So it'd be really cool if we could start to shift those norms. Um, anyway. I have this, I have this ideal vision and I, I, I don't think I'll ever like, you know, I'll have the balls to do it to be perfectly honest. But I was telling myself before I went to medical school, you know, I'm going to be busy, but around the wards, I'm just going to wear a weighted vest. I'm going to have some time, just drop <laughs> down and do some push-ups, and, you know, screw it. If it's, it's stigmatizing, turns out I won't do that also just because it's just the way patients feel uncomfortable X, Y, Z, but like, why couldn't we live in a world like that? Mm -hmm. Well, and we have, yeah. And I think like hospitals are such a prime area to launch that type of stuff because you have people who are 
basically, I mean, I assume in most cases, if you find yourself in a hospital, it's because you ran into a problem. Otherwise you probably wouldn't be there. So you're catching someone in a moment where they're probably very willing to make a change. You know, if I'm walking around like, oh yeah, I'll never have a heart attack. I'll never have cancer. I'll never, you know, break my leg, get in a car accident, do this or that. So I continue the behaviors that increase my risk of getting that despite, uh, you know, not being aware of it, but then you end up in a hospital. Now all of a sudden, you know, I'm thinking, well, this did happen to me time to get serious. So it's like, I feel like if they had things like gyms, nutrition programming and things in a hospital, it'd be a great place to get people hooked on it and start it off on the right foot. That's a really good, that's a really great point that people are kind of primed to be receptive to trying something new in a hospital. Like what if we just integrated like all the yoga studios and gyms into like the lobby of a hospital so people could like walk by window shop, get some ideas in their head. And that'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're headed in that direction. I, I would hope we're heading at least to some degree in that direction because what I'm seeing right now is just like hospitals shooting themselves in the foot. Like it's appalling what I see. I literally like you walk into a patient's room. There's this big whiteboard next to their bed that has one number written on it in the center and it's 217 for their fasting blood sugar. So obviously they're aware, okay, this person has a high fasting blood sugar. They're pretty diabetic. And yet sitting in front of them is, you know, an empty container of chocolate cake and half eaten mashed potatoes. And I kid you not, like, this is the kind of thing I see all the time. And, um, and people don't really even blink about it. It's just, it's just the standard. And it's kind of appalling, because we have so much innovation, uh, and medical technologies that are so amazing, and and so many brilliant physicians and, and, uh, and researchers and doctors that are putting so, so much effort into trying to improve or maintain people's health. And it's completely undermined by the 99 cent donut. You got billions, <laughs> trillions of medical spending. And then you're giving a 99 cent donut to, a, to somebody with diabetes and not telling them what's what. And, you know, the juxtaposition there that a 99 cent donut, or in the case of the pandemic now, a free donut from Krispy Kreme when you get your vaccination, <laughs> that little thing which seems so harmless is kind of undermining everything we're doing in healthcare. And then we end up with a system where we're paying obscene amounts for healthcare. You know, the U S by far spends more, um, you know, in terms of GDP than any other country in the world. Like we're almost near 20% of um, GDP as healthcare spending. Whereas a, com- a country like Singapore, Singapore's 4%. GDP or like 4.5% compared to 20% for the U S or 19 to 20%. And then like Canada, Switzerland, France are all like 10 to to 12%. And we still have the worst outcomes. In fact, if you compare even the health outcomes for acute myocardial infarction, maternal um, mortality, fetal mortality among the the wealthiest Americans, those living in the top one and 5% wealthiest counties, and you compare their health, health outcomes, to the average person, not the wealthy people, but the average person in the next 12 most 12 developed countries, we end up with poorer outcomes across the board on those metrics, which is appalling because we have way more medical spending. And certainly there are issues with the structure of healthcare, but I would argue it's just because of, you know, the problem represented by that 99 cent or that free donut that like you can't out, you know, we see, we hear you can't outrun a bad diet. You can't outspend a bad diet either. It doesn't matter how much you put in um, innovating if 
you know, the, the foundation of your health, your metabolic health isn't, isn't adequate. And so to change that, we need to change culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and where does that start? I guess that does start with, um, public perception, social media, and just having conversations like this and starting the conversation. Um, and then to those people that are actually brave enough to wear the weighted vest around the wards. Yeah. Yeah. To change the culture that way. I think like, I mean, to go back to what you started with, I think like, I mean, the pandemic was such a big missed opportunity, in my opinion, to jumpstart some of that stuff because it got so polarizing. It became like this uh, idea of like you had like the take care of yourself, exercise, eat right group. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you had the get the vaccine at all costs group. And they kind of pitted those two groups against one another. And it's like, what what? what's the deal there? Like those aren't mutually exclusive endeavors. Like you could, you can bang on about getting a vaccine at the same time as you encourage people to take care of themselves nutritionally and give people tools to improve that. Even if that's a slower route to getting healthy, it is still something you can do alongside getting a vaccination and things like that, or any of the other protocols that are put in place. And we told him not only did they miss that opportunity, but they did what you said. They actually went against it and gave away free donuts and, and encouraged like the exact opposite of what you should be telling people to do alongside some of these other things. And that's, the, I mean, that's in my opinion, one of the biggest missed opportunities. I think we maybe caught some of that indirectly from uh, contrarians who decided to like push that message anyway. And, uh, and, and go with it. So there was some information out there about it, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I always felt, found that kind of odd that we were going to put those two things against one another when, when they could easily fit right next, next to one another from a messaging standpoint. A hundred percent. I, these things are totally complementary. like metabolic health and masks can both matter. Why are we creating dichotomies? People are just attracted to these dichotomies and that's true across the board. People like to create stereotypes and it's just, it's gotten to the level of absolute absurdity where, I mean, a lot of people probably think they can guess people's political affiliations or <laughs> um, notions on abortions based on the photo that they posted of their lunch to Twitter. Yeah. Like they, you know, it, 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 it's, it's become kind of absurd and everybody needs an opinion on everything. Like, you know, if you're into, you know, metabolic health and you want to talk about low carb nutrition, like why you have to, dredge up another like what is the hill you really want to die on that's what i found really harmful especially now in the low carb community is you know some people might have differing opinions but like do you feel strong enough to destroy the credibility of the entire community by like hammering on about this can't we just kind of like choose our battle and focus on our thing and make it you know acceptable and complementary to a lot of other approaches and philosophies and not write people off because they got a vaccine or because i didn't get a vaccine it's just to me, it doesn't seem worth it. If you need to put everybody into very, very particular camps, then you're going to end up building no alliances and you're not going to get anywhere. So for me, my basically one issue is metabolic health. And do I have opinions on abortions? Do I have opinions on politics? Do I have opinions on the vaccine? Yes. But quite honestly, it's not something that I, I think matters to my larger mission. So I tend to try to leave it at home, but I don't feel like that's become very, very easy. Now Mm -hmm. you're like pushed to have an opinion on everything. Yeah. If someone could agree with you on all your takes on every one of those things you said, minus one of them, 
and you could become the enemy of that person, which is mind boggling to me because like, I can't think of a single person, my wife included that I agree with everything 100% about like, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, if that's how you're going to navigate life. Then no, I, I gear up for a rough go about it's, it's very, it's very funny to watch and it happens all the time. I've just kind of most recent example, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but, um, um, we mentioned I was a lean mass hyper responder earlier, which means my LDL cholesterol is through the roof, scary high, but I've been getting a lot of crap recently. There was, um, a very active discussion and a, uh, a low carb email to serve about something I said publicly on Twitter about conditions under which I would take a statin. And people were arguing that basically I was a statin pusher. And because I said, you know, you know, it's not rat poison that like, if I, you know, was using it for secondary prevention, if I had an MI, like that actually would make sense to me that I have some degree of nuance to my opinion, or I put something a little bit different out there. I was, you know, getting attacked them from both sides, obviously. Yeah. Um, but then it, it was just like, you know, again, take the, just take that as a representative example, stepping back saying, Again, I disagreed with this one little point on the utility of this medication. And because people are so extreme on that perspective, they're like, okay, you, Mr. Sir, who are running around unmedicated with LDL levels, I'll just be transparent because I think a lot of people know anyway, you know, above 400 or 500, you know, often in the 500s, you're a statin pusher. Like I, 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 you know, I have my, my personal reasons for not being medicated at this point in time that I, I am very happy to talk about um, now or any other time, but it doesn't mean that my, you know, opinion is monotone, so to speak. And when you try to paint that nuance to any degree, let's just say it's not incentivized. I would say, you know, the, the compliment is, is more incentivized where it's, it's very productive in terms of branding um, and likes and, and re positive reinforcement to stick to one very simple message be that whole foods plant-based be that statins are you know god's gift to humanity statins are poison low carbs the best you know xyz um it's it's incentivized to give very simple messaging and i think people then internalize that it becomes very easy and very uh seductive and you convince yourself that you know your echo chamber is right and things just get more and more extreme Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I were to go back into teaching again, I think my message to my class at the beginning of every year is there are very few absolutes. So start out assuming there aren't any when you're addressing any topic. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. I like that. <laughs> uh, I do want to kind of back up a little bit and just highlight a little bit about uh, some of the stuff you shared in the beginning with your, your approach to low carb ketogenic mm -hmm. diets and just talk a little bit about your particular protocol, why you kind of went that direction versus a different one. And what maybe it yielded for you from a health standpoint that kind of keeps you doing it, despite perhaps some of those high LDL markers that you that you've seen in some of your results. Uh, if you want to share with us just kind of like, how did you, I guess, maybe the question is, how did you start your low carb journey? And then how did you end up with what what I gather to be kind of more of a Mediterranean low carb ketogenic style of eating? Yeah, well, I, I started as um typically perceived as healthy ketogenic you can get like as typical medi keto as you can get which was very very low saturated fat so no cheese any dairy red meat very high fiber um like 40 ish grams a day 35 40 grams a day 
that's where I started. That's just what I was comfortable with um, in terms of starting. Because when I started, again, I was a, I was a, a keto skeptic. Um, I just had a lot of standard perspectives about what is healthy and what is not, and had internalized the saturated fat phobia. So if I was going to do this, I thought I, you know, I should try to do it the quote healthy way or what I thought was healthy at the time. So my original ketogenic diet did look like um, tons of avocados, tons of olive oil, avocado oil, very little red meat, if any, um, very little dairy, if any. And despite that, and this was my, my foray into what became my interest in the lipid energy model and lean mass hyperresponders, my LDL jumped through the roof. Uh, and more than tripled. Um, in the first six months, it went from 95 to 321. Again, that's an LDL of 321, eating 40 grams of fiber per day, basically no red meat and cheese, you know, upwards of 80% unsaturated fat, upwards of 85%, really. Um, and nevertheless, I had that response. So we can table that, but I just want to point that out um, as an N equals one demonstration the lean mass hyperresponder does not require a high saturated fat ketogenic diet. And I think it's very unlikely that um, saturated fat is, is the primary dri driver or um, even required for a uh, lean mass hyperresponder. And we can circle back to the data on that from our last trial and something's upcoming if we want. But that's what my diet originally looked like. Um, now, that was sufficient to resolve my inflammatory markers and my colitis in terms of the symptomology, um, the bleeding, um, and the uncontrollable, I'll just say bloody diarrhea. Now, uh, it didn't solve all my gut problems. In fact, my gut problems have still not been completely solved. The given type of colitis I have tends to oscillate with IBS-C, so IBS with uh, constipation, which is very ironic and unfortunate pendulum. If you can imagine either you have uncontrollable diarrhea or you're constipated and, uh, the constipation can be really, really unpleasant. So one of the things I played with was fiber reduction, um, to, to see if that would help. Um, and also a, a carnivore style diet, um, for five months. And I actually find that, that, that did work pretty well for me for a period of time. I would say it worked pretty well for three months and then it stopped working quite as well. Um, also there was quite honestly, the social aspect of it. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to be a uh, carnivore or fully carnivore socially, especially when you're, you know, living where I'm living and around the people that I'm living with and, you know, trying to, to, you know, be social and have some variety. And, and quite honestly, I'm still on the fence about what is healthy long-term in terms of the microbiome and diversity. I hear people argue that, you know, you can be perfectly healthy. Your microbiome can be perfectly healthy on a fully carnivore diet. Um, and that there's insufficient evidence to show that we need fiber for a healthy microbiome. And I actually don't disagree with that. I, I can see where they're coming from at the same time. We evolved to be omnivores. It kind of makes sense to me that diversity and in input will correlate to diversity in the microbiome population. And that just generally, and this is true for ecosystems in general, not just the microbiome, diversity tends to lead towards more resilience to kind of insult. So what I'm saying is if you don't have a, you know, diverse microbiome, you might have very little buffer buffer room to wiggle in terms of, you know, inputs. And, and, and that's something I wasn't per se willing to compromise. So I've, you know, been always iterating and experimenting quite honestly, what I find and this makes it really, really difficult to, to give any prescription, but the rules keep on changing. 
that, you know, a diet that might be working well for a little while might then stop working. So my carnivore diet, which was like amazing in the first few months, then just stopped working. And right now I actually don't, can't tell you why. I just think it did. And that's because, you know, your gut adapts, your biology adapts, your environment adapts. And so I'm kind of always just tweaking things um, and playing with things. And I've been all over the spectrum of ketogenic diets um, in terms of saturated fat intake, in terms of fiber intake. Where I am right now is a high unsaturated fat, relatively low fiber, or I guess moderate fiber. Um, I eat around 18, 20 grams of fiber per day, which is probably nearish the national average, but not quite as high as the recommendations, I think, for male of 35 grams of fiber. Um, so, you know, I float around and it's very particular to me what vegetables I eat. Um, so, for example, I don't eat many nuts anymore, but I really get on well with rhubarb and fennel. And again, these things are just things I noticed empirically that like rhubarb, for whatever reason, makes my stomach feel generally pretty good the next day. Um, might have to do with its nitrite levels and then nitric oxide produced in the gut. I don't know. You know, you can come up with, and I do all this all the time. It's fun to think about biologically plausible reasons for doing this experimentation. And then maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. And maybe there's even some placebo effects to it. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've now gotten to the point where I just love experimentation. Um, and, um, and, and I do think that, you know, for people who are skeptical as I was, a Mediterranean ketogenic approach um, is, I would say, palatable. I would say it's palatable to the masses, which is why I kind of advertise this or a large reason I advertise this. I wrote a cookbook on Mediterranean keto and, and it's not because I think plant foods are the best. It's not because I think carnivore is bad. And I think carnivore can be fantastic for some people. It's just about like, what messaging right now is productive? What messaging can I put out that's actually going to kind of move the needle? And, and, and I do feel like showing people who might be keto skeptic that you can do this in a way that is complementary to what your doctor might think is healthy is quite productive, that it's kind of a foot in the door. It was for me. My, you know, our arc was that I was skeptical of keto. I tried Mediterranean keto and I found, wow, this is actually pretty cool. Oh, maybe this crazy carnivore diet could be cool too. And then I experiment with that. But when you try to go from something like a standard American perspective straight to carnivore, some people can make that leap. Some people can't. Um, and unfortunately, like you said before, uh, or like we were talking about before, you get a lot of stereotyping where people just get this, this image in their head of, and I saw a tweet the other day, it's like, the tweet was something like, I don't get keto. How can having a block of cream cheese be healthier than having some berries? And that's, that's the, the caricature people have in their head, um, in part because of the messaging each and every one of us put out. Um, so, you know, I'm Mediterranean keto mostly, and I would say Mediterranean now using like, you know, lots of olive oil and fish. For my own reasons, it works well for me. Um, it's a way for me to kind of take a a more conservative approach until we have more data. Um, it's also important for me in terms of just like messaging and, and being to what degree I am a, a role model for, you know, a, a patient and a person who is in a kind of, I feel like a funny position because I'm a patient, I'm doing things for myself. I'm on social media, but I'm also a medical student in, you know, walking around clinics. I want to, I don't know. It, it's, 
I'm rambling a little bit because there's so many factors that go into it that I almost can't articulate all together. And I don't ever know at one time, you know, what is the dominant factor in my decision? Is it because I'm trying to do some sort of messaging? Is this something for myself? Um, it's, it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated mess, but I, I feel this is, uh, just, just, it's just fun. It's just mm-hmm. fun to always be changing things up. And if people ask me like what I eat and I can give representative examples, but, but why pin yourself down to any one thing? It's that cycling to what degree you can and that tweaking, always tweaking that makes the nutrition journey so exhilarating. Um, so sorry, that was a really unhelpful long answer. <laughs> no, I loved it. I think it, it highlights, I think a little bit of what we talked about in the beginning. And I think it actually like, reminded me of maybe what my intent was originally when I said people moving seamlessly through the recommendations. It's like you have individuals who can follow the recommendations and not get a lot of health issues popping up on them. And they move seamlessly in the sense that they just don't have this compelling reason that is like slapping them in the face to make a change. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have like the carnivores, which I think is like the ultimate elimination diet you essentially eliminate all potential food allergies mm-hmm. you reset and then you start reintroducing things one at a time to find out exactly what is going to jive well with you and what isn't and then you just get a whole another wide group of folks that either i think it's a relatively small percentage of the population but happen to kind of stay with strict carnivore because anytime they add something back they have issues and then mm-hmm. you get folks who add back quite a bit of different stuff and they end up kind of in a more, I think most of them still probably end up semi low carb, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's examples of people who went carnivore, fixed a bunch of stuff and then found out, Hey, I can be moderate carb, but it's gotta be these groups of carbohydrates versus those groups of carbohydrates. Cause when I have those, I get all sorts of reactions and things like that. And I think that's just an interesting, interesting path to take for a lot of people and, and relatively, relatively new, at least in the information age that we are in now. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're getting back to the point we started with, which is that this is so individual that every path is so individual. And (laughs) and that's always something in the back of my mind. And and the reason I keep on stuttering and sticking my foot in my mouth is because anytime I'm formulating some words to speak, I feel like it's slighting another group Mm. when I'm like, Oh, and then it wasn't working for me. So I reintroduce things. I almost feel like what goes on. There's a second voice in the in my head that's saying, Oh, now you're telling, you know, you're, you're sending the message that people that are sticking with carnivore because it works so well for them. That's a bad thing. And I, I never want to send that message because mm-hmm. I, I do believe basically every patient narrative that I hear, I don't know why people would, would lie about their narrative. So when somebody says I had 50 years of crippling depression and I just only eat ribeye and now I feel fantastic, I just wanted to celebrate that person. Conversely, if somebody reaches out, I'm, you know, a whole food plant, plant-based vegan. And I think it's helped really helped with my cancer. I just want to celebrate that person as well. Um, even if that might not be my lifestyle choice, it, it just, it's about supporting each other in the nutrition journey. And there's so many different ways to do that. Um, and it's just, it's just so interesting because I don't, you know, there's so much we don't know. There's so much we don't know about, let's say just carnivory. And and what frustrates me more than anything is that people want to close off the conversation before it's even started. Like there was so much controversy about this new carnivore paper that came up. Yeah. Um, actually, I haven't listened. I know the new, really controversial, which I haven't all, haven't listened to. Um, uh, 
Jordan Peterson, uh, Joe Rogan podcast, apparently talked about it because I had a Harvard med peer just text me like they're talking about the carnivore paper. And I'll go listen to what that's about. But it's like one of those things where people have opinions on it before it's even really been properly studied. This is good. This is bad. I'm like, this, we don't know, but this is cool because it's starting an area of discovery and conversation that quite honestly, we need to have if 95% of the patients in the trial are reporting improvements. Like, what don't we know? And how does this change the, 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 the narrative of what this spectrum of health can look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, so. I listened to that interview, all four and a half hours of it. <laughs> so get yourself a half a day when you're ready to sit down for that one. But uh, the thing that I think is, and, and I was thinking about this as I was listening to the interview. Uh, at one point, Jordan mentioned he's like he 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 prefaced the entire conversation with a statement where he's like, "I hesitate to talk about this because I don't know a lot in this world. All I know is it's helped me in some big, meaningful ways." So I do it, but I really hesitate or even recommend other people go a different route if they can. Cause I don't, he's like, he's like, I'm not convinced that this is necessarily something that should be uh, like advertised as, as beneficial for a large enough group of people to have people who are otherwise doing well to just say, screw it. I'm going to go and eat nothing but ribeyes like Jordan does. Yeah. And like he, so he prefaced it with all that information. And I guarantee you any, like anything that comes out about it, outside of just the actual listening to the whole interview will be, be something to the degree of like, you know, they'll completely ignore the part where he laid out like just the context and jump right into the fact that they're talking about this carnivore diet. And then they'll, they'll layer it with all sorts of horror stories and whatnot. And that's where the, 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 the unfortunate side of that, I think is usually, usually occurs, even when you, you go out of your way to lay out the context that doesn't sell, that doesn't create clicks. So they leave that part out of it when it gets repeated outside of the show itself. And when you have episodes that are four and a half hours long, or even an average Rogan episode of three hours, you oftentimes miss a lot of context. If you're watching clips and not actually diving into the entire discussion or even multiple discussions over the course of time, as his show has been out for, for as long as it has. Yeah. No, people like the clicks. I think they're probably the most viewed, what, six ish total minutes of that are going to be, they had a discussion on what the Bible being more than true. And then he had a discussion about climate change. Mm-hmm. I listened to those and, and, and they kind of ticked me off, but I'm listening. I, I want to hear the, them in context because I mean, obviously you can pull those out of a four hour context and, and make some controversial claims. But uh, I do find like, you know, there's a lot of talk about Joe Rogan. Like every time I listen to his podcast, even if I hate the guest. He's good at drawing out interesting points and making people think if you take the time to listen to the four hours in general, I think Mm -hmm. he's a pretty clever guy. Um, Although I I might be getting myself in trouble because I genuinely don't know a lot of what he said about the vaccines and et cetera. Recently, I haven't had a lot of time for a Rogan podcast in the past year, but um, yeah, it's, it's cool to expose yourself to kind of different perspectives and then take them for what they are. People really just trying to put ideas out there, not trying to proselytize all the time. Like you were saying, it sounded like Jordan's saying, look, this isn't the way, but it should be an option. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what this is all about. Like, you know, I, I questioned to myself, you know, why was I never given the option of a ketogenic diet for like years? Why was this never even put on the table of experiment for this with, you know, experiment with this for two weeks, see how you feel. It probably won't do anything. Maybe it will do something. Like if somebody, you know, not that I needed permission, but I felt like I did for my clinicians to like, toy with that. And it took me 
so long um, and, you know, so much lost hope and learned helplessness that to, to even start to experiment, like, why, why couldn't we start the process there um, mm-hmm. with a panel of options and things to just kind of like toy with? But yeah. Well, I think so. I mean, I wouldn't say this is the entirety of it, but I think there's plenty of like fear mongering around stuff uh, out of just this, this idea. Like if like, like they don't even want someone to try it where like, I think about that. It's like when I first tried a low carb ketogenic, I was pretty sure ketogenic for the first month just to make sure I like did everything right. And, you know, my whole thought the entire time was like, I'm going to do this for a month. And if it sucks, I'm going to stop doing it. Like, <laughs> and it's yeah. like, I'm not this like, higher order thinker of by any stretch of the imagination. I think most people go into it with that sort of a mindset where they're like, you know, I'm going to try this out for a month. If I don't feel better, I'm going to stop doing it. Or if I feel worse, I'm certainly going to stop doing it. But I feel like the narrative sometimes goes towards there's people recommending this diet and then just millions of people are going to dive into it. And despite doing drastically worse are going to somehow just keep forging away. (laughs) No, they're not. They're not going to do that. They're going to bail on it probably sooner than they needed to and, and go a different route in most cases. So I'm like, I don't, I kind of reject the whole premise of, uh, of just like being like these, that this is a scary risky thing to be promoting. Cause, uh, I mean, we've tried to promote certain food, food, uh, pathways with very little success. So what makes you think that like, any of these other op- these more potentially limited approaches are going to somehow sweep across a wide group of people to the degree where people are driving their health into the ground without knowing it. It's just, it seems pretty unlogical to me at this yeah, point. Yeah, that's a great point. Like why, why insulate someone from a controversial con- or different perspective? I mean, like the analogy would be if you're, if you're religious and you're raising your child, like, you know, Catholic to believe every word of the Bible. Actually, I know very little about religion. So I, I'm, I apologize if I'm misspeaking, but like, would you want them exposed to evolution and vice versa? You know, I'm, I was raised atheist. I'm atheist. I would love for my kids to be exposed to as much religious philosophy as possible so that they can make their own decisions. And, you know, I presume that they would probably make a similar decision to me, given my narrative around creation and everything based on my line of logic but like i'm i'm not so insecure in my perspective that i'd want to constrain someone else from kind of toying with the ideas around the nutrition or life that might work for them and i feel like it's a it's a a symbol of insecurity when you say don't try this it's it's dangerous because like you said like what is, you know, if you feel shit on carnivore, you're not going to continue on it. And what is two weeks going to do to you? It's not going to cause your arteries to clog, <laughs> like with just two weeks, two weeks of eating meat. It's just worth an experimentation. And if something interesting happens, then let's follow up on that interesting thing. Um, uh, but there's definitely the same, even with science. I know when uh, you and I spoke with Dave um, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about like the lean mass hyper responder study where we just kind of want to probe this question around whether or not people with profile like me have progression um, of plaque. And some people don't even want to ask the question. I would counter to like, this is the strongest or one of the strongest tests you possibly could have for the standing hypothesis. Why wouldn't you want to put the hypothesis to the test? Because in this population, basically we're isolating in humans, high LDL as a variable, no known genetic or definitely not monogenetic underlying causes. This isn't an animal model and these people aren't otherwise metabolically unhealthy. 
So you're isolating the va variable and putting the lipid heart hypothesis to the test in a very, very strong and novel manner. Like if this is, you know, a line of, of, uh, it's a narrative around biopathology that you have, like, why wouldn't you want to put this to the test either way? And, and, and also like, why can't we, why can't we pursue scientific questions with differing hypotheses openly and celebrate when we're wrong? Like we're at a point in time where you need to make a prediction and it's shameful to be wrong. Whereas what science is supposed to be about is, is coming up with ideas, putting hypotheses out there and then testing them honestly and celebrating whether you're right or wrong because you move closer to the truth. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. So you put a hypothesis out there and then like you're invested in it, you need to be right. Otherwise you'll be shamed if not. And that just doesn't make, doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Like, or I mean, what, what makes sense to me is people trying things and finding out for themselves with, with, when it comes to nutrition, I think like one of the more, uh, goofy things I'll see sometimes is you'll have someone be like documenting their health journey online for whatever reason. And they'll mention like, Oh, I started out carnivore. Then I added some fruit back and now I'm adding back some vegetables. And now I'm having, now I'm eating a carnivore diet with uh, fruits and vegetables, <laughs> which is a little confusing. I can, I can appreciate, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, what they mean is they're eating a animal product dominant diet and they're including some fruits and vegetables and honey and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And like the response sometimes is, well, look at this idiot. He arrived to where we want him to be in the first place. And it's like, great then like, like what, why then they found their, their, their way to what you wanted them to do uh, by proving to themselves. I mean, it's just what we do in school. It's like, if a, if a student, if I had a student and I was trying to teach a specific like topic or something like that, and they doubted me, what better way would it be to have them actually do the experiment themselves and come to the conclusion that we know is right. I assuming it's a topic that we have some conclusive evidence about. And it's like, I think that would be such more impactful way versus me just telling them what to believe and then them blindly believing it versus them seeing for themselves that, yeah, I, I don't want to use this example, but I will anyway. But yeah, I think when a few years ago, when there was like that surge of flat earther type stuff that came out, which is just kind of mind boggling to me. But the one way people were taught to kind of figure out for themselves, like, or one of the best ways I saw people like reversing that mindset in other individuals is like, well, let's do the experiments that show us that the world is round and uh, not flat. And these people who were just, you know, digesting random like uh, pieces of information that weren't true, they went through some of these experiments and like, oh, okay, now I see it. So you actually taught them through experience to figure out what the answer was versus just telling them, believe me, if you don't, you're an idiot. And, you know, you tell someone they're an idiot for believing something and you better believe they're going to double down on that opinion. Yeah, it's a doubling down that's a problem because when you have someone with an opinion that, you know, you disagree with, they're kind of two, well, three options. One is not to engage at all. But the two options in terms of convincing them are to question it and then accompany them on the journey to discovery or to criticize them for it. And if you go with the latter, they're just going to double down and then they'll never be willing to accept the alternative. So you're just undermining your ability to actually convince them. Whereas if you start where they are and say, okay, I understand your skepticism. How can we evaluate this, evaluate this together and then basically demonstrate that you are going to positively reinforce if they admit they're wrong. It's not like a ha ha, I told you so. It's a cool, we discovered something together, kind of that that kind of thing. And that could be flat earthers, that could be omnivory. <laughs> uh, 
Um, it could be, you know, a lot of things, but, um, yeah, right now everything has just gotten into this camp, that camp mm -hmm. that, uh, we don't have that much anymore, not only in social media, but just also in academic medicine or academia in general, like people get attached to their models to the point at which you just identify it with it. You self-identify with it. And it's, it's really, really difficult to see the world any other way. And I just, it seems kind of sad to me, kind of mm -hmm. boring. Isn't it really, really, really cool when you're like, wow, I was really wrong about that. And I just see the, the world or this biological model through new colors. Like that's my favorite thing when I'm reading a paper and I'm like, I just did not know that could work like that. I was reading a paper the other day or, or even just last semester, I was reading about insulin signaling. This is actually a, a paper written by my professor. And I just had this idea of like, oh, insulin signaling being at the cell surface for anybody that knows about insulin signaling. This is a weird nerdy aside example, but I'll bring it up anyway. And there was a paper about how the insulin receptor actually signals in the nucleus in some places. And that's just a tiny, but like when you completely have this shift of like, I didn't know this was in the realm of possibility. And this is in terms of biology. Like that is the most exciting moment. I, I, maybe this is just me, but I don't know that, how that's not exciting to everybody. We're like, wow, like that can do that. <laughs> I don't know if I'm making any sense right now. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors are Bioptimizer's Biome Breakthrough, which is their gut health product, and Optimal Carnivore with their organ complex products. You can head over to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for links, details, and descriptions, as well as discounts that they offer, or head to the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, having, having, looking at information and being proven wrong or being like being shown a scenario or a way of thinking that you hadn't considered are, they, they should be praised and they should be celebrated, not like seen as weaknesses, seen as reason to ridicule and things like that. Because if we go back to what I said before about like, why would someone bang on with a carnivore diet or a low carb diet if they felt miserable for it? Well, the reason they would maybe do that would be if they were so invested in a specific, uh, specific ideology that they're going to treat it like a religion and, uh, and, and keep forging away, even in the, in the presence of clear signals that they should stop. And they're probably doing that as a way to, you know, try to prove a point, which they shouldn't be trying to prove anyway, because if you would have just been open to them exploring and helping them along the way versus ridiculing them, they probably aren't in a position where they feel like they have to treat it like an ideology. Yeah, I know. But I don't think that the, the other camp ever acknowledges the fact that you kind of pushed them into that position of needing to double down. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Right. Yeah. Well, cause that would be admitting fault on their end and then they're in the yeah. same boat. <laughs> yeah. Um, I did want to go back to one, one topic before I let you go, Nick, and it had to do with uh, your, Mediterranean, relatively low saturated fat approach and still having that lean mass hyper responder kind of profile where your LDLs are quite high. Because uh, one thing that I think you highlighted for me was my assumption going in was that the lean mass hyper responder model was somewhat correctable still in the context of a ketogenic diet by doing essentially what you did. Uh, but you're clearly an example of that not happening. I think the first time I thought about it actually was when Dave Feldman was on Peter Atia's podcast. And 
I think Peter had shared an example of a client of his who had very, very high LDL markers and they switched them from saturated fat to like a very olive oil heavy diet and his LDL actually did come down. So my question is kind of like from your experience, if we know anything about this, is your scenario fairly typical or is there a lot more people who can kind of reverse fat and still be ketogenic, but with a poly monounsaturated fat dominant diet versus a saturated fat diet? Or do we have any idea of like where like kind of some percentages at a population level would fall in terms of being able to manipulate it to that level? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll preface my answer by just saying right now we are are working on the the paper that's going to you know describe the model behind the lean mass hyperesponder phenotype lipid energy model paper, and in that paper we're going to put forward very specific predictions and testable hypotheses studies we want to do to properly and systematically explore this. Right now we only have anecdotes and limited anecdotes um, at that. Um, that said, I'll just give a little bit of background on you know on the, the model and then, um, what I've played with and what we've seen, um, and a few people that we've, we've toyed with, um, the model to explain this phenotype. So just to give a quick review and you can go listen to the other podcasts, if you want a, a deeper dive or, um, maybe Zach, you can link the paper and I have a, a short ish lecture on the paper that you can link as well. So people can get background, but basically the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype is a metabolic profile typified by very high LDL, very high HDL, and very low triglycerides. So those three markers, specifically LDL above 200 milligrams per deciliter, HDL above 80 milligrams per deciliter, and triglycerides below 70. And I'll speed through it now, but the punchline of the model is that in lean people who are more um, dependent on fat fuel, what you have is you have shipping out of these triglyceride fat-rich um, VLDL particles from the liver. There's this protein lipoprotein lipase that kind of sucks the triglycerides out at tissues in need, including um, fat cells and um, oxidative muscle tissues around the body, um, resulting in an increase in LDL because VLDL core remnants are LDL, IDL to LDL. And then actually the turnover process, the sucking out of the triglycerides and the remodeling actually shed surface components that are sopped up by um, HDL, including surface cholesterol, free cholesterol, which ends up in HDLC, you have an increase in the HDLC. Um, a lot of words there. The point being, we would predict all things being equal, there's going to be a proportional increase in LDL alongside HDL with this lipoprotein lipase mediated VLDL turnover. So the more fat shipping out from the liver and turnover of those particles you have, the higher rate at which that's occurring in lean persons. And we can get into why lean persons in a minute. We have a few ideas, but um, you would end up seeing higher LDL and HDL. And that's going to be the primary driver. That's why it's called a lipid energy model. It has to do with energy. Um, and so there are different, you know, levers you can pull to attenuate that rise in LDL and concomitant rise in HDL. The primary one is changing your fuel source. So increased carbohydrates, your LDL goes down. And from our case series associated with our paper, we know this is extremely effective. Um, so we had a case series from Dr. Tro who had some patients come in worried about their high LDL, lean mass hyperresponders. You just reintroduce carbs, 50 to 100 grams, their LDLs are dropping 
by about 200 on average. One guy had a drop from 665, 665 milligrams per deciliter to 185. So it's a drop of 480 milligrams per deciliter with nothing more than basically a sweet potato, which is really astonishing. So changing your fuel source or just reintroducing some carbs is highly effective. Um, and then other predictions in the model will be saying gaining body fat um, would, would be effective. And it has probably to do with ANGPTL levels, leptin levels, but we see that at least in anecdotes as well. So um, there have been times when I gained weight um, and even gaining weight, say, despite eating more saturated fat. So I've been at, at, you know, leaner at higher monounsaturated fat and heavier at higher saturated fat at different points in time. The body weight will trump the saturated fat, at least in me, hmm. which is interesting. So there's a point in time where I was eating actually 45% saturated fat, but I put on 10 pounds um, relative to being 10 pounds lighter and eating 85% unsaturated fat. Um, my LDL had dropped on the higher saturated fat, heavier version by about 120 milligrams per deciliter. So that's just my N equals one comparing in that case, apples to oranges. Um, in terms of isolating the variables and saying, okay, what happens when you just change from saturated fat to say olive oil? Um, I've seen a few people in which there's just, you know, there will be a small decrease. I think it's a mediating variable. It's not that big polyunsaturated fats will probably have a much bigger drop. So, um, everybody responds differently, but I know that when I have sesame oil, which is about 41% linoleic acid, my LDL will dry, drop quite a lot. But even if I'm having like a quarter cup of sesame oil per day, my LDL has still been like 393, like high. And again, remember my baseline LDL was 95. Like I don't have genetically high LDL. I'm not a hyper absorber because I played with that as well. There was a point in time where I'm like, oh, I must be hyper absorbing cholesterol. So I cut my cholesterol intake from 800 milligrams uh, per day to less than 300. I was eating like lots of chicken breast uh, and egg whites and then adding tons of olive oil. My LDL actually went up, I think by 24 <laughs> milligrams per deciliter. All that happened is my HDL dropped by 20. So I restricted the, the cholesterol intake and my, my LDL went up. So it doesn't seem to be a hyper absorbing phenomenon, at least in me. Again, I, we have limited data, so we have to test all that. And then in terms of fiber intake, again, I definitely think adding soluble fiber will have some impact, but I don't think it will reverse the phenotype. Um, and Dave is doing the fiber experiment, I think, as we speak. I can't do the fiber experiment because soluble fiber, like if I had some miracle noodles, I'd be clogged up for a week and I'd feel horrible. Hmm. Otherwise, i do it myself. But um, that's one experiment I will not be doing. So we'll see with the fiber thing. Um, but like I said, at the beginning, I was on 40 grams of fiber. My LDL was still 321 and that was on low saturated fat. So, um, you know, I, I can't say in the population because I, I, I don't think it's typical for lean mass hyperresponders to be eating very low saturated fat diets. And we don't have the data on that in our study. We didn't, um, collect detailed dietary data. So it remains to be determined, but, um, I think it's a point of interest. Another point of interest is the degree to which um, pharmacotherapy will be successful and helpful in these individuals. Um, we have a tiny signal from the few people I do know who have tried, say, statins or lean mass hyperresponders. One individual whose identity may become public, he's indicated. Um, uh, who me and Dave spoke to, he's actually an attending 
at MGH, MD, PhD, big shot doctor. This isn't a lay person. This was someone that after the paper came out, emailed me, you know, he's one of my very much superiors at a hospital where I work. And he's like, Nick, I'm a Lemass hyper responder. So we had a whole discussion and he, um, you know, has tried statins and the impact was, you know, it dropped his LDL, but it was kind of minimal, minimal to the point that his cardiologist said, it's, it's not even worth it. Your LDL is still around 300. Like this isn't having enough of an impact, which is interesting given that, you know, the lipid energy model might predict that energy demands are going to keep on driving up uh, LDL to need. Um, so I, I, I'm curious the degree to which different pharmacotherapies would be effective in LMHR, um, like, you know, azetamide versus BCSK9 versus, um, fibrates versus statins. And, you know, in an ideal world, I'd love to take a bunch of human guinea pigs and do like a long-term crossover and, and dissect that just at the, the mechanistic level. All that's a long way of saying right now we're in an area where we really don't know, um, what the risk profile is, what the precise mechanisms are, and what the levers are people have to pull in terms of the maximum impact they're going to have. What we do know is that carbohydrate reintroduction is probably very effective. So if you don't have a metabolic need to be in ketosis, like me or say somebody with epilepsy, if I were you, I think the conservative approach is to reintroduce some carbs. Is it really that much of a struggle to say eat a sweet potato per day? Like, what is that going to do to you? And, you know, it, 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 it might save you a lot of plaque progression. I think it's, it's very difficult what, to know, and this is also going to be something controversial, but what we, we should be doing for individual patients on a patient per patient basis, just because we don't know the risk pro profile. So like, let's take another example of, you know, a kid and, and, and we have these kids with epilepsy where they're lean mass hyper responders and reintroducing carbohydrates in a dose dependent manner will cause their seizures to increase. But because their LDL is high, right now, this is a, a um, compromise that their physicians, their parents, and them, for the older children, are willing to make because they're scared about their LDL. And they don't know, they don't have the information to make you know, informed decisions. So you kind of have to walk the line, I'm just going to take more seizures, potentially have brain damage, brain development damage, um, in order to reduce a risk that I'm not even sure about. So we, we have such crude information. Um, and all we really want to do with the LMHR study in terms of risk profile is start to, to refine, you know, what the risk profile is, and then to start to elucidate the mechanisms so that, um, first of all, we can just learn about more about the metabolism in general, such as such a fascinating phenomenon, but also if necessary, um, innovate treatments, ways to get around that. Um, you have to study the phenomenon to let's say solve the problem if it is a problem. Now I'll get a little personal um, to finalize this and just talk about you know where I am. I think some people ask you know this a lot, like why is your LDL so high? Why are you not medicated? And what business do you have in saying you know that other people maybe should take medications X Y Z? This is a very personal uh, issue for every patient. What I've done, I will say is, you know, when I saw my LDL go up, I was concerned. The more I've looked into the literature, the more I've become, as Dave says, cautiously optimistic that my, my risk profile not, my, might not be that high risk. That said, 
I'm not so arrogant to think that I know more than all the cardiologists that I've consulted with who have been doing this for longer than I've literally been alive. I, I, I try to remain as much as I can humble about my perspective. I, I still am cautiously optimistic, but I'm gambling with my heart here. Like this isn't something that I take lightly. Like if I'm wrong, I'm killing myself slowly. And so am I convinced that saturated fat, you know, is bad for me and that raising my LDL even further would be harmful? No, but, but you know, all things being equal, I'll take the measures I can to lower my risk within the realm of uh, interventions that are possible for me. So what that has been is eating fiber to tolerance and to pleasure. Cause you know, I, I do love my, my vegetables and my fruits to the degree that I can um, focusing on unsaturated fats again, because I don't see a downside. I really love olive oil. Like, I just love the taste of it. So why wouldn't I enjoy salmon and olive oil as opposed to ribeye if I actually like salmon and olive oil just as much or more, and it costs less. Um, and then I have experimented with medications, um, which I've either been intolerant of, or I haven't tried the full spectrum for various insurance reasons. And then what, what um, I think is really important for people to think about is their individual baseline risks. What buffer do you have to wait to see how the data turn out? Um, so, you know, we have examples of people, you know, there's one prominent case recently of somebody um, who was a carnivore on, on Twitter came out about the fact that he had, a, you know, a severe atherosclerosis um, and, and, you know, a strong family history. I bet you if he had gotten baseline testing, and actually he did get baseline testing, he had already advanced disease before he went, say, carnivore. If I were that person, I'd be very, you know, you don't have a buffer to kind of play with the unknowns here. Um, whereas it turned out I did. So one of the things I've done along my journey, um, and I'll be a lot more public about this information, um, soon and be able to give a lot more details, um, soon about what I've done. Um, but I, I did get, you know, advanced imaging on my arteries, not just a CAC, but a CCTA, a coronary CT, uh, angiogram to look for both soft and uh, hard plaques to see, you know, is there any progression? So I got a CCTA uh, several years after going keto and watching my LDL jump to, you know, between really 400 and 550. So after, you know, two and a half years of having LDL between 400 and 550, I got this advanced scan to see, you know, is there any plaque progression in my arteries? And it's worth noting that to rationalize getting the scanner to argue with it with my PCP because I wanted to go through the right channels. Um, I said, look, I'm not just doing this for the sake of doing this. I'm doing this to direct what my next steps are because I don't know what they should be. And I'll make a deal with you. If you order this scan, which they were reluctant to do at first, if I have progression, I will, I will go on medication or change my diet to lower my LDL. I'll make this a priority and figure out how to fix it. But I need more information in, in order to direct what I'm going to do personally. Um, and what ended up happening is my scan was perfectly clean. Um, remarkably. So we've had a few different cardiologists look at it and actually two cardiologists, one lipidologist found it remarkable enough that we're probably going to publish on it. Um, for now that's confidential. I think we've agreed that we're not going to release this podcast until I have some feedback about the, uh, 
the data um, and we put them out there. But I do have some some detailed data that I'm I'm, I'm ready to make public. Um, that said, again, the negotiation was I would change my diet. I would go on a statin or other form of foreign therapy if my LDL was high, or you know, change my diet, whatever I had to do to lower my LDL if my baseline risk was high or not baseline risk. I've been on keto for multiple years. If I had progression, it turns out I don't. So what I interpreted that as is I have a buffer. That's all I know right now, because if I've had LDL between 400 and 550 for years, and I haven't had, you know, any registerable progression on CCTA, then if I wait another two and a half years to see what data comes out in order to direct my life course, i probably will still be in a safer zone. I have a buffer to play with. A lot of people, especially those with pre-existing conditions, don't have that buffer. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm privileged in that respect, but this is a long way of saying, I mean, don't, don't get caught in an echo chamber um, and think that this is, is low risk at this point in time. It's really important. And we've been trying to be really conservative with our messaging that we don't know if this is low risk. We want more information for people like me or kids with epilepsy just to refine the decision-making process. Um, but right now, the conservative thing to do, all things being equal, be to reintroduce carbohydrates, consider medications with your doctor, and, um, you know, within the realm of what's reasonable for you um, and, and, and what concerns you have and have a complete discussion. Um, because there's so many factors involved, whether or not you're carb tolerant, whether or not you have other family histories of things like type two diabetes or Alzheimer's disease that you're concerned about, because some of these drugs might increase risk of those conditions. And we should be open about those potential risks. Um, and just be able to have a conversation and to let people make, make individual decisions without saying you must do this or you must do that. And so now I find myself in a position where I'm very comfortable saying to people, look, talk with your doctor. Statins are not rat poison. There should be something, um, to consider potentially for yourself at the same time, you know, I'm not ready to start this medication. Um, although I'm always entertaining the possibility that I'm going to change my mind given uh, new data and just to continue to learn and keep an open mind about that. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned. And I know Dave is as well, that the work we're doing, which we think is super important will be misused and misinterpreted. Um, and the reason we're advancing this is to help people to refine the fields in terms of its knowledge and just to help our understanding of cardiovascular disease and to improve public health, not to harm it. Um, and so, you know, do no harm first. We don't want our message to be misinterpreted as this is low risk. Um, and also when people, and we have this all the time, kind of parrot what we're saying or misrepresent it, it it places a stigma on this line of research and makes it really, really difficult to progress. And I want to emphasize that because what we're trying to do with all our free time is to, to investigate this honestly, to get this, you know, integrated into standard academic medical thinking, to have it adopted, to have people interested in pursuing this phenomenon with us, because we don't have all the resources that, you know, some of the people around me do. And that becomes really, really difficult when take, people take the message and bandy it about in a really dangerous manner, because then the impulse and the reaction is to suppress this research. And that's what we don't want. So if, if people are going to get one call to action from me at this point in time around lean mass hyperresponders is please message conservatively, not because you need to agree 
with the common knowledge that high LDL or saturated fat is bad, but because in order to make progress, we have to be very conservative about our messaging and take, in this case, actual academic medicine baby steps, stay with where the literature is and push things forward. If we try to push beyond where we are in terms of the data, we will get squished like a bug. And, um, and so if you're wondering why we're conservative about our messaging, that's, that's why, um, I told you at the beginning before we started, I was going to have a tendency to monologue and you should just interrupt me. Do you have <laughs> no, I think it's good. I think it's good. It adds a lot of context, I think. And I, I mean, what you said that stuck out to me was like, all things created equal. And that's going to bring into the conversation like, well, what is your particular circumstance? So for someone mm-hmm. like yourself, you know, like you don't have the tool available to you of reintroducing say hundred grams or a hundred calories worth of sweet potato. Uh, a lot of people do. So it's like the person, the people like myself included, that's probably one of the reasons why I'm not a yeah. mass hyper responder is I include that sweet potato in most days. <laughs> uh, that, that could be part of the reason why, if not the reason why. Yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, so for someone like myself, who's not noticing or have any reason to believe that that sweet potato is doing me any harm, it should probably do that to keep my risk profile lower. But, uh, no, that's all things created equal in your case yeah. and reintroducing that reintroduces other life altering li- life quality altering experiences that you'd rather avoid, especially if what you're doing to prevent those isn't showing up on the the scans that you've had done that would indicate a problem or a progression. So, I mean, I think the, the long winded monologue was probably needed in this particular circumstance. <laughs> yeah. I just hope people like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've gotten more public about my, my, my profile. And then I just want the last thing I ever want is people to be pointing to me as an example of why they're fine with their high LDL. Mm-hmm. And then not test um, and have them have a 95% blockage and thinking they're clean as a whistle like you are. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, 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 I'll say that. And I'll also say, I, I really ap- appreciate when people come forward to me in a non-aggressive manner to give me feedback, um, and messaging either verbally or in written form. Um, I'll really celebrate Michael Midrum and uh, Ethan Weiss for being, you know, good people who I think have pushed back. And I hope I've been able to listen to them and, and refine my messaging over time. But, um, uh, you know, I, I, I try to be receptive to feedback, um, especially when I'm not pushed to be on my back foot and people aren't being just like directly cruel. Um, and I think that's, you know, um, that's that. I do want to, you know, flip, flip the table here. Cause I'm curious in you, tell me what you eat, um, in terms of like carbs and carbs as percent calories, net grams. I'm kind of like thinking about you in the context of say like, you know, the, the Volk study with the ultra endurance runners, their levels, and just kind of imagining what's going on with you. But right now, as we understand it, I would predict that the lean mass hyperresponder phenomenon is pretty reproducible. So I'm interested what your, your daily cycle looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was actually part of that Volok study. Um, so there is some, uh, I'm like one-tenth of the low carb cohort, I suppose. <laughs> uh, the, you know, it, that was, uh, I think the requirements, if I remember, I mean, this was back in 2014. So I was, I wouldn't say early in my, I mean, one of the reasons I like that study is I think there was a minimum requirement of two years of roughly 10% or less carbohydrate consumption. Yeah. So mean 10.2% and I think 82 grams per athlete. So I didn't know where you felt in on that spectrum. Okay. Yeah. I would say, uh, 
I'm probably a little higher than that on average, at least when I'm training like more aggressively. So I'm usually in the ballpark of 100 to 150 grams per day average of carbohydrate. And that's in the context of, you know, mm. upwards to two, three hours worth of exercise. Um, or in the context of a week of say 15 to 20 hours worth of running mobility, strength work, and everything that goes into the training aspect of, of, of my programming. Uh, I don't necessarily stick to that window and plug and play every day. So there are days where like, say I have like an influx in training where I'm going to go up above 150 grams. Then there might be a day where I take a rest day after that big training block and go down below 50 grams and it just kind of averages out. So, uh, the way I try to kind of fill those numbers is for carbohydrate sources. The biggest ones for me are fruits that tend to be like berries and melons, some apples, uh, potatoes or tubers. Those are going to make up a little bit of honey. Those will make up kind of like the bulk of my carbohydrate intake. You know, I, when I first started low carb, I stayed away from bread, grains, refined sugars at all costs for the most part, other than some like race day fueling type of stuff. I've brought some of that back in over the years just to kind of play around with it. And, um, I'm not super convinced that I do really well with grains. Uh, so I tend to try to still keep them out for the most part. I'm not like terrified of them in terms of like never having them, but I'm definitely minimizing it. So like probably once a week or something, I might have some grain based thing and it's going to be a pretty small quantity of like, say 20, 25 grams worth or something like that. Uh, the fat sources I have are pretty, this is where like over the course of my low carb journey, it's kind of ebbed in or it's, it's adjusted, but I've done everything from like plant dominant, low carb to meat dominant or animal-based product dominant, low carb. Most of the time I've been kind of somewhere in the middle. So like fats and proteins are typically like the fats that come along with the meat products I have, which tend to be, you know, beef, eggs, uh, fish, uh, pretty wide ranging. I'm not really like, I don't necessarily avoid any type of meat. Uh, chicken is probably the one I have the least of, um, fat sources that I'll bring in that are not tethered to the meat. It tends to be like olive oils. I'll do some coconut oil, dairy fats and things like that, uh, are, are pretty prevalent. Uh, other sources of carbohydrates and fats that I get that are more training based are, um, there's two, actually there's S fuels train, which is a fat based, uh, product that I'll put in to like when I want to like have calories coming in during a big workout day, but not necessarily in reintroduce as much carbohydrate and then race plus, which is a carbohydrate based, uh, supplement that I'll have with, with when I'm kind of like fine tune my race feeling strategy. Um, let's see, what am I, what am I missing? I'll do a fair bit of like very low carb, uh, fiber rich vegetables like spinach, broccoli, things like that, but they typically sauerkraut, they typically end up being like mostly kind of at dinner time type mealing. So I'm not eating a ton of like bulky foods during the day, partly just because I'm training for such a high percentage of it that it's like, I just don't want to have a full stomach all the time. And that just makes kind of yeah. training more miserable. So I usually stick to higher volume or lower volume, high calorie options during like the training window of the day. And then you'll go a little bit more into kind of the the bulkier foods, if I'm going to have them at the, the, during dinner, so I can, uh, for lack of better words, sleep it off. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you're, how often do you eat and what is your eating when, like, what is your, your time frame eating window? 
Yeah. So like I, the way I like to describe it is I have kind of like a foundational approach of two main meals and then mm-hmm. I add to that. So like if I'm doing absolutely nothing, uh, exercise wise, I'll have two, two meals that are probably around a thousand calories each in that neighborhood. And then I just add to that as the activities pick up. So like early on in training, when I'm maybe closer to 60, 90 minutes of workouts, you know, I might, I might add like 500 calories to each of those meals and kind of stick to that structure. Usually once I start getting passed around like 1500 calories in a sitting, it just starts to get to be too much in most cases to feel, feel comfortable. So I start adding different time windows. So it'll be something like, uh, adding some low volume, high calorie stuff, like first thing in the morning before I head out for my first training session, something similar in between those two meals. And then usually when it gets up much above that, usually when it gets above like 4,000, 4,500 calories is where I start to feel like I'm forcing myself to eat well beyond what I like want to really do. And then I start getting into the ballpark of just looking at it more through like a two or three day lens where it's like, okay, I'm going to have these two really big training days. I'm going to end up with a calorie deficit over the course of that. And then I'll have a rest day on that third day and I'll just eat a thousand calories above what I would need for a typical resting day and then spread it out a little more evenly versus trying to like, you know, put 5,000 calories, 5,500 calories to the system on a day where I'm running like 30 plus miles or something like that. Yeah. That's all interesting. Um, and what is your, your LDL and HDL run? I know the mean in the study was 161 for LDL. I don't know if you were near the mean or above or below. Yeah, I'm pretty sure in the study I was right around the mean. Uh, typically on on cholesterol scores, I've ranged anywhere within range. Like I've been a little bit lower in the spectrum. I've been like right up against the high end of like where they don't recommend you really do anything uh, and everywhere in between. So I would yeah. be really interested in having a continuous, like uh, some sort of continuous yeah. lipoprotein and analysis thing. I think that'd be really interesting to look at because like, you know, all my blood panel stuff has been on, you know, probably at least 12 hours fasting. I want to say I might've done yeah. one with eight once. I can't remember what they suggested. There was one that was lower than the others, but uh, from a fasting window. Uh, but yeah, I think that would be, be interesting to see. The only times I've had tests come back where I was like, well above the the range is like what we talked about on the the lean mass hyperresponder episode with Dave, where I got a blood panel, like literally the day after I did a hundred kilometer race. And I feel like if I remember correctly, other ultra runners who've done similar things, regardless of diet, always have super high cholesterol markers post post event on in scenarios like that. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense with the energy model. And I would be really interested to see like how quickly I, I, I do think that you would become a lean mass hyper responder if you went very low carb, mm-hmm. um, just for a short period of time It'd probably happen within a week, not saying you have to do this experiment. I just I think, I think it'd be interesting. I think, you know, what's probably happening is with your carb intake while you're, you're, you're burning a lot of fat, your, your, your liver glycogen is at a level where you're just not, um, dropping it enough to have the hormonal changes in the angptls or even the leptin um that would really trigger the increase in in hsl and nifa just like spilling like crazy into the blood uh, there's a really interesting mouse paper by perry at all 2018 i think in cell metabolism and they were showing that um the rate of glycogenolysis um, which is breakdown of glycogen in the liver as it drops as you deplete liver glycogen what happens is there's this drop in leptin like drops like a stone um, and that combined with the low insulin 
really kind of kicks off what we would consider the beginning of the lipid energy model cycle where non-estrified NIFA uh, spill into the blood, fatty acids spill into the blood are taken up by the liver and then packaged into fat molecules. In mice, they aren't shipped back out as VLDL because mice are a little bit different. I think they probably would be in humans. Actually, it's kind of funny in mice when you fast mice and this kind of thing happens, you start the cycle of what we consider the cycle of the lipid energy model. Then they just develop fatty liver because the fatty acids get taken up by the liver and then they just accumulate as triglycerides rather than getting put back out as VLDL as part of the cycle. Now, humans don't get fatty liver as far as I'm aware from fasting um, or ketogenic diets. In fact, I think it's the opposite. It's used to treat NAFLD. So um, it would be, be interesting. And the study was kind of cool because they were able to, obviously it's mice manipulate it. You give a glycogen phosphorylase inhibitor, which inhibits glycogen breakdown. Mm-hmm. And you have the same response. You add back leptin, you block the response. Kind of all showing that, you know, it is, it is the hormonal metabolic m- milieu, let's just say. And um, I would think that 100 and 150 grams of carbs combined with eating frequently enough or putting energy frequently enough in your body to support your training would keep your, your, your liver glycogen above a threshold where you're really going to have that, uh, that shoot up mm-hmm. in LDL. Although it might be happening periodically at times, which is why it'd be super cool to have like a continuous LDL tracker on someone like you, especially mm-hmm. since your energy needs are persistently changing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, it's but that, hard that to, remains pick, to be determined. The, the, what do you eat question is always like, yeah, I'm always like, well, what part of the year do you want to hear about? <laughs> so well, actually to, to follow up on your, your curiosity about like what would happen if I would go kind of more strict keto for a while, I do do that in the off season. So mm-hmm. it wouldn't be anything that I'd have to like change other than make sure I get that blood panel taken during that phase of the year where, you know, I could have two plus weeks where I'm pretty strict and see if there, if I get a wildly different result from that, that might be fun you to do. do that. Take yeah. pictures like Dave with your fists in of all your meals and just track them, get the blood panel. We'll pay for it. And we'll, we'll see if, if we make you into a lean mass hyperponder okay. as per we call it the gym hypothesis. The idea that you could just go to a gym and like, I know you, you, and you, I think I can turn you into lean mass hyperponders. Yeah. <laughs> you just let me control your diet. So yeah. um, it, well, it, that's a big question. Like how reproducible is this phenomenon? Because our data were somewhat self-selected mm-hmm. given what we've seen. I, I do think it's pretty reproducible, but is there a gene environment interaction? It's possible. Um, it, it's possible. Again, it's not baseline high LDL. Like my LDL was 95 to start and mm-hmm. now it goes over 500. Um, so it's not that, but is it possible that there's a gene that affects my you know body composition and also my response to, you know, different energy sources, it's, it's feasible. And so the proof is if you can select people who are, you know, at random lean or take people even better who are obese to make them lean and just keep on recapitulating this phenotype, I guess you can call it a degree of, you know, penetrance. What is the penetrance of the phenotype? If we took a bunch of lean people, put them on a particular diet, how many could we make, make lean mass hyper responders? And if I were to just pull a number out of my butt, I bet it would be above three quarters of people. Hmm. I do think. But that totally remains to be determined. Well, I'm all in for a heavily documented uh, strict ketogenic diet for a week plus at some point. My my next off season is probably not until the June timeframe, but <laughs> I'll definitely <laughs> let you guys know when that rolls around if you want to take a peek at oh, my particular circumstance. Yeah. So um, what, what races do you have coming up? 
I'm actually gearing up. Uh, there's a really flat runnable hundred miler in June that I'm kind of targeting as my a race, but I'll probably do a fair bit of racing leading into it at like sub hundred mile distance, like 50 K hundred K type stuff. Uh, so I'll probably do maybe three or three ish races before then, but they will be kind of like lower level training races more or less. Cool. 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 And, uh, have anything exciting coming up for February? Anything to look forward to in the, Oh, you're in Austin now. So you're yeah. all warm. Yeah. 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 I was, I was thinking my Boston point of reference. Now I'm very jealous of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My wife and I are in Austin. I guess the big, the big February excitement for us is we close on our house mid February. So hey. that'll be, that'll be good. We'll, we'll be happy to move in there and officially be Austin residents. So, uh, yeah, that's the big one. Um, then it's just about getting kind of settled here. So we're excited for it all. Very cool. Well, congratulations on the house. Thanks. Yeah, no, thanks a bunch. And thanks for taking some time and coming on before, before I let you go, if you want to share the list, share with the listeners where they can find you, I'll be sure to throw that in the show notes as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've been less active on social media, but I'm at Nick Norwitz on Twitter. Um, and then I have a, a YouTube channel that I don't use very act actively, but, uh, when I do have like, you know, a paper, a lean mass hyperresponder paper, I'll do digestion. So if I'm giving a lecture, um, I'm giving a lecture soon at the public school, uh, Harvard public school, school of public health. I'll like, I'll do a YouTube version for that. So every now and then there's little things that pop out on there, but, uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter. Um, and for sure, you know, if you're interested in this line of research, read the paper, share it, um, we just want to get the word out right now and start a discussion. So, um, uh, I definitely appreciate anybody who listened to this all the way through and, uh, <laughs> tolerated my, my ramblings. No, it was all good. I think, uh, you were probably due to come on earlier. So I like to think like we probably turned two episodes into one <laughs> and that's the only problem we had. So <laughs> thanks a bunch for taking the time. This was great. Thank you so much, Zach. All right. Take care, Nick. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.